and welcome to Novel Not New, a trend podcast. We're a narrative gaming book club podcast. Um, I'm your host, Jennifer Uncle, and uh, joining me as always, Six Detmar. There was that one time I didn't. I guess that's true, yeah. Joining me for almost all the time, Six Detmar. <laughs> Give me less credit, please. <laughs> <laughs> a regular co-host, Six Detmar. Did we ever do one without you? I guess we haven't done one without you yet. We'll have to figure that out. <laughs> Just gonna record one in secret and post it. <laughs> I mean, y'all have done that to me. Not a novel not new, but on other feeds. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> joining us is our special guest for this month, uh, Curie A. Page. Hi! I was sitting here patiently because I realized for the first time in a while I'm kind of the guest. <laughs> so... Um, and yes, I I may have been responsible for those secret podcasts that Six is unaware of. I mean, I, I'm aware of them now. Yeah. After <laughs> I the figured fact. it out. After the fact. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You did a pretty good job ambushing me. Thank you. So typically around this time, I kind of ask folks what they've been playing. But to my understanding, Six and Carrie, both of you were pretty focused on... Getting through, and I went out of my way to bust my ass to prepare for this segment oh, too. Okay, what what have you been playing then? Well, I've been playing uh, a uh, PS2 uh, narrative game, R Racing Evolution. That's like the more simmy version of Ridge Racer, right? I wouldn't call it simmy. I would say it's more narrative focused. It's like it specifically it has like a story mode with like cutscenes and stuff. Um, it's still a Ridge Racer. In fact, it has a mechanic I'll talk about that is distinctly unsimmy. Um, that's also great. I, I think more non-simi games should use this mechanic. It's sick. Um, okay. Our Racing Evolution. It's a PS2 Ridge Racer spinoff. You play as Rena Hayami. Is that the, like, sexy lady that's been on the, like, cover for, like, the inception of Ridge Racer? Or is that a different character? It's a, she's only in this one. This is a different sexy lady. Okay. Um, so, she is a Japanese ambulance driver. And we start the story with her responding to an accident on a raceway. And she is driving an injured, uh, you know, driver to the hospital. And the driver's manager is in the car. And he's like, listen, you say this is going to take 20 minutes. You've got to do it in 10. This guy's going to die. And you're like, listen, you better be careful what you wish for. And you fucking drift into a back alley in your fucking ambulance. Right? Damn. Okay. Uh, you get there in 10 minutes instead of 20 because you're, like, sliding through, like, six-foot-wide fucking alleys and shit. And you get there, and he's like, God damn, that's the craziest driving I've ever seen. Have you ever considered being a racer? And he gives you a business card. Um, so you get into the racing scene. Well, Rena gets into the racing scene. It's not a not a first-person situation, really. I mean, you are playing as Rena, but, you know. Anyway. Sure. Um, but... Not all as it seems, because in your first race, after, you know, your tryout, right, you, you like, you sub you substitute race for one race, and it's a very easy race, but it's still fun. Um, then you go through training, and you have your first proper race as part of the team. 
and uh, you're sitting around, you know, standing around waiting for the race to start, and another uh, lady with a very low zip-down jumpsuit walks up to you, and she's like, oh, you must be new, Uh, and she's kind of giving you shit, and you're like, "Uh, I'm just, you know, listen, I'm just trying to do my job here, and she's like, yeah, who are you racing for? And you're like, uh, I don't know, and she's like, yeah, because... Rena is, you know, just got into this, right? She doesn't really know the politics and the, the layout of the scene. But you are racing for GVI, which is a basically a mercenary racing group. <laughs> hell yeah. They don't have... The, no, not hell yeah. They're bad, Jen. Because they don't have a specific team. They just, like, whatever bi- whatever billionaire pays them to win a certain race that's who they're racing for this is like the fucking nascar equivalent of like fucking pmcs yes yes it is um and so you're racing for them and the other racers who are like no the whole point of this thing is that like you have a team and like you build up you know like points over the you know the, and you sort of build this narrative of a course of of a season you don't do that you just sort of jump in and randomly win races and so everybody is kind of like resentful of you right um but then what happens is you find out a couple of things one you find out that your current manager is sort of being like forced to resign because one of his other um, racers had an accident. And then also, you find out that... Um, this is this is past where I got, so the specifics are a little beyond me. But basically, like, they also, for the sake of making money, are starting to do, like, you know, like, oh, you have to throw this race. We've got too much money on it. You can't get first. Classic, classic sort of, like, you know, dirty racing, like, narrative mm-hmm. beat. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've heard so much that, that sort of that sort of story so much in racing, so much as I've heard it's it in sport. like boxing. But yeah, yeah. it's cl- it's classic. Same basic mm-hmm. premise. You have to take a dive, but which I mean, you have to drive off a cliff at 120 miles an hour. <laughs> no, um, you just have to not win. Um, and so at the end of the game, you break off and you form your own team. And uh, the the lady who zip, who doesn't zip her jumpsuit up properly, well, okay, the one that you don't play as, any woman in this game, the two women in this game don't zip up their suits properly because it's Ridge Racer. That's just how they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, she starts to finally gain some respect for you, and it turns from being like a bitter rivalry to a more friendly rivalry as you're both just, you know, rival racers. Um, the things that make this game fun, I mean, first of all, it's Ridge Racer, and that's fun. But there's a mechanic called the pressure gauge. Go on. (laughs) If you're driving and you're behind someone and you get kind of close to them, right? A meter appears over their head and it starts filling up. Also, a thing to note is that this game has a fair, like a pretty constant in-game chatter. Both your pit crew talking to you, but also you can hear the radios of other drivers. And uh, your, your race number is 76. So people tend to refer to you as 76. Hmm. And so you will pull up behind someone and they'll go, God damn it, it's 76 again. And they'll be like, get the fuck off of me. And the meter starts filling up. This is the pressure gauge. You are driving aggressively and you are making them nervous and uncomfortable. And the higher it goes, the more likely they start, they are to make a mistake in their driving. And if it fills all the way up, it starts flashing red and they will 
they the next time basically guaranteed the next time they take a turn they will oversteer and spin out damn okay so kind of like in some ways related to like takedowns in like the burnout series or specifically burnout three except this is a lot like the the takedowns of burnout three were super fast and like very Mm -hmm. chaotic this sounds like it's going for the more slow buildup of like harassing the opponent and then forcing them to make the mistake and you get like a similar satisfaction of forcing your opponent to like crash right and you're not like you are not taking direct action like you are not there is no like paint exchanging ideally i mean this is a car game and there's collision that can happen that's not encouraged and it doesn't add to the meter this is just you know you're tailgating them and they freak out huh um so you can also just pass people. I usually just pass people. Um, and there are characters who, who are, like, like named characters. Well, everyone has a name, but there are characters who are, like, actually named, not just, like, randomly generated last name, um, who have, like, a longer, a bigger pressure gauge than most because they have a, they have a stronger mentality. They're harder to crack. Um, but, yeah, the chatter is nonstop. There's the pressure gauge. The only problem I have with this is this is my first time playing a Ridge Racer game, and... The game has some really aggressive assists in a way that are sometimes like they can be good, but they can also be really frustrating hmm. um, because the game wants you to drift and it tries to help you drift. Um, and so to this end, it'll do like some automatic brake applying and it will sort of like like you will have moments where you feel like suddenly you've clicked onto a railroad track and you're on rails because your car just moves in a different way right weird can you turn that off uh i think you can but it's like at that point the like i tried turning it off for one one race and it's like by that point like my understanding of the game was so defined by these mechanics that it just like felt completely different and i couldn't drive at all um but the good thing is like you can basically go like it, it has the automatic braking and the automatic braking isn't like guaranteed it won't always save you but it gives you an indication as to what needs to happen so you can sort of fill in the details yourself with manual braking and so you can go into a corner very fast and it'll sort of iron things out as long as you're paying attention and you can you know drift it out and and keep going the problem is sometimes you have a different idea than it than the, the the like assists do or sometimes on specific tracks i've noticed that it just seems like it's tuned wrong where it just tries to like like you can feel like the hand of god grab your car and almost jerk it into a wall and you're like what the fuck are you doing game um it can be very frustrating Jeez. it's overall not a hard enough game that it's like a a big like progress stopper but when i am like like i feel like i am actively fighting as like a crane tries to shove my car into a wall i get pretty irritated <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you should go back to, like, R4 um, when you want to give another Ridge Racer try, because, like, that's considered one of the all-time classics in terms of how it plays, but uh, also Ridge Racer 6 or 7, th- those are also good choices. Well, good news, I own all of the games you've mentioned. <laughs> Excellent. The interesting thing about R4 is it also has some unique story elements for... A arcade racer just you choose your difficulty based on the specific racing team you're going to join 
and that difficulty more or less determines the team's attitude and also placement. Like, the hardest is, like, bringing a team that was, like, dead last back to first place, and uh, the easiest one is just this um, woman who's inherited the company and um, the specific racing team, and she's like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll try and catch the race next time. Great job, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing is that it actually keeps track of what place you're getting in every race and has a unique line um as you as you keep going through it like i started on the normal team and which is basically the pac-man racing team and the manager's kind of a dick to you just constantly talks about how oh yeah you think you can make it i'll see if you can make it and he just I got second two times in a row, and he was like, huh, second, you got second two times in a row, huh? You're getting consistent results, but you're going to need to do better if you're going to win this whole thing. And um, when I switched over to Easy, I won basically every race, and the characters also commented on that, like, wow, this has never happened in the history of Ridge Racers since X year, essentially. <laughs> And I've never quite seen a racing game campaign, like, have unique writing for um, all of the, your various results like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, it makes me sad that Ridge Racer is not around anymore, because it seems like as, like, a series that was willing to take some really interesting, like, leaps. Like, the one of the last ones was uh, Ridge Racer Unbound, uh, Unbounded, excuse me, it's a more awkward name than I thought, um, which is burnout mm. it's got car combat it's like oh okay or the ps2 version of like speed racer that used the white stick and you flicked and jumped on the other cars yeah or the wheel man yeah the sad thing is like with from the ps3 to the ps4 and especially in this generation racing games kind of dried up especially arcade racing games and uh even when they've tried to bring it back through stuff like Onrush, which was made by former Evolution Studios, no one was interested enough to make it work. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of one of the many casualties of our continuing, like, the continuing cost of labor at rising to make these big AAA games. Yeah. Hmm. It's a shame. Yeah. How about you, Kyrie? Uh... I actually did play a game with a little bit of story, uh, believe it or not. Um, I don't. Um, I know, Six, because you fundamentally don't believe in me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uncheap the sword. Um, <laughs> um, so recently, um, so in between playing about, uh, you know, playing Shenmue like, for this podcast, I had another game that I had been... Um, that was kind of like, this was like a sudden drop sort of game. This was like, the game I'm talking about is Dranus, which is the new game from Team Ladybug. Team Ladybug previously has done two games, which are Toho Luna Knights and Record of Lotus War, which are two Metroidvania. Are those are the same people? Yes. Because those games 
came onto my radar around the same time, and I tried them both, and I was like, these are both fucking sick. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. here's the thing. So those are adaptations of, like, other works, but then they, like, come out with Drainus, and it is a, it's a bit of a secret. This is something that, like, Jen didn't know about me. I'm actually quite a bit of a fan of the side-scrolling, like, shooter, specifically games like Gradius and Ikaruga. But the thing is, there hasn't been, like, really a good one of those in quite some time. Andranus is like a fucking ray of sunshine in a goddamn cloudy day. Like, it is marvelous. And I'll talk about it more probably in other podcasts, but briefly, I actually really like some of the narrative stuff it's doing in this game. The basic conceit of the game is it's a, you know, side-scrolling, you know, shooter. Your ship, the Drainus has this ability to drain light-based attacks and fire it back at your enemies. And initially, like, the narrative conceit of, like, any of these side-throwing shooters, you know, Ikaruga is more metaphysical, you know, metaphorical with it. Gradius is much more straightforward. Big alien invasion, you gotta get to the core and destroy it, right? This kind of, like, turns it on its head in an interesting way, where you do the tutorial, you're like going through the tutorial learning how to play this game and this like commander is talking at you and then the last line of the tutorial goes something along the lines of like well new new recruit uh good luck and if you're the fucking thief that took this like ship we're after you motherfucker and you're like oh and you find out that you are piloting a stolen ship from this empire from like you're like this commander character's like sister or like character from the future to try and save like the present something like that but like immediately it turns out on his head of like you are fighting this like massive empire um with this stolen technology um and i don't know it's just cool that like even a simple thing like that recontextualizes the experience and Again, for a genre that is not really known for its story, it's fun to have these characters, you know, do the kind of Star Fox like window pop up of like characters kind of shouting at you or you're cooperating with a teammate who's like implied to be also piloting the Drainus with you. Um, and you can also, during the main game, pick up these like audio logs that, you know, you learn a little bit more about like the commander, their, their position in this like super evil like space empire that just blows up planets like constantly like it's Mm -hmm. again super simple stuff but i do appreciate the attempt to tell like a semi-coherent narrative with it and also you know with the implications of like time travel or whatever it's sort of a narrative framework of going back playing older levels that sort of thing but drainus is just fucking cool it's just super fucking cool because it basically solves every problem I've had with, like, the side-scrolling shooter genre and introduces solutions to problems I didn't even realize were problems. Like, it's goddamn marvelous, and it's only, like, $15 on Steam. Like, like it looks like nothing else, sounds like nothing else, and the story, again, for side-scrolling shooter, is not bad and kind of fun, and it just kind of rocks... It just rocks. I am really excited to kind of, like, get through the rest of the game and report back on it in a more, you know, you know, thorough manner. But I just... It's just that there's a moment in the first level that, like, I'm playing it, and I am, like... 
you know, some real fucking, like, white-knuckle, edge-of-my-seat sort of, like, gameplay that I haven't experienced since I started learning to play, like, Gradius 3 and Ikaruga, right? Like, like holy shit, what a good game. Hmm. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. I'm not as familiar with uh, shmups as you are, but uh, it's definitely a genre I want to look into more, like, there's that, and I've heard good things about the recent Cotton reboot game, so... Yeah, like, the fun, like, you know, I'm much more interested in, like, the framework of Space Shooter than, like, you know, you know, a little witch, you know, casting spells, which is still fun, obviously. Like, you know, this same team could probably make a decent, like, you know, mainline Toho game. You know, they... they, they see... If nothing else, uh, Team Ladybug is really, really good at drilling down what makes that genre that they're adapting appealing and interesting, and then offer some new and interesting twists on it. Yeah, uh, as I as well as Six have, have experience with uh, their Metroidvanias, and they're fantastic developers. So I'll need to check that out sometime. Yeah, Drainus rocks. <laughs> like I can't wait to talk a little bit more about it but i is it time for us to like rip off the band-aid that's on the face i'll do a quick update uh since much like i promised jackson i have been playing final fantasy 13 I went back to that and uh, kind of started over from the beginning just because, like, if I leave a game for more than six months to a year or something, I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to start over so I can remember everything. But, uh, yeah, it's... I'm five chapters in, and it is a great Final Fantasy. It, uh... The whole Gambit system... Well, I don't think it's Gambit. It's, Gambit uh, was... I think Final Fantasy XII? You're thinking Paradigm. Yeah, the whole Paradigm system where you're kind of just swapping roles back and forth and it's not so much hitting your attacks as it is being in the right role at the right time. That's fun and engaging and I'm enjoying that part. And uh, I also just find it interesting how many of the complaints I see online about Hope being a whiny kid and all of that, it's like... Well, the point of this story is that the, here's a bunch of traumatized folks banded together who are bad at communicating with one another. And uh, you even have Manil hammering at home in the narration just being like, we couldn't see what she was really feeling and we kind of failed her all at that moment. All of us failed her at that moment. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting framing device just seeing these characters kind of reflect on how they can't tell each other how they're feeling so they're just constantly leaving each other or putting each other in a bad situation and uh 
yeah, it's leading to an interesting story and I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Just, I thought it was kind of far five chapters in, but I mentioned it to six and six was like, nah. <laughs> so um, I might be back with another update on that uh, the next time we convene for Novel Not New. But uh, you are not at the point where most people say the game starts. Is that the part where it opens up like and stops being kind of a corridor thing or? Yes. Yes. Okay. You are not. I, my recollection as to what you told me is you are 15 hours away from that. You are nowhere. <laughs> yeah, but this, I also, this game be long. But I also kind of heard that that only happened towards the end. Like that section isn't supposed to be super indicative of how the game is actually structured and that it just kind of goes and you're back to the forward march. Yeah, I mean, I, I am not a person like when I reached when I when I first played this game and I reached the part that people talk about as being where the game starts, I was like, oh, I actually don't like this very much. Um, <laughs> but I do think it is a important moment in sort of like giving you a second to actually explain. I, I, I think that part of the game, even if you don't find like it's like, oh, now we have a bunch of side quests for you to do that engaging, which I don't. Um, I found it important as sort of like giving me a second to actually look at the world instead of just sprinting through it at top speed so I didn't die. <laughs> yeah, I, I can never tell whether I'm supposed to actually engage all the enemies or if I'm supposed to sneak around some of them. Eh, whatever you want. You've got an item that specifically makes you invisible. That's a clue. Yep. Yeah. Though I, I usually took that to mean, I usually took that to mean, oh, it can give help give you the edge when you go into a battle. But yeah. yeah it's multiple uses. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Up to you. Yeah. But yeah, um, let's go ahead and as Kyrie put it, rip the bandaid off. And uh, we're going to discuss, well, when we announced this, we said we were going to discuss Shenmue 3, but. And we are. We are, but um. <laughs> We kind of talked amongst ourselves and figured out it would make more sense to kind of cover the series as a whole because it you can understand how Shenmue 3 ended up the way it did by looking at the other two games. And uh, we also kind of just want to give folks an opportunity to learn why Shenmue 3 kind of rubbed us the wrong way in certain ways. Mm-hmm based on how the other two games were. And also just give you context, because I think like the number of people, even people who are way into games who've actually played the Shenmue series is pretty low Mm -hmm. because they have a reputation for being kind of abrasive and they are like these old games that didn't sell well at the time and people just haven't bothered. And it's only relatively recently that they became available on things other than, like, an original Xbox and a Dreamcast. Like, uh, Mm -hmm. it got HD ports in 2018. Like, specifically, I think we should start even, like, a little bit before that, where, like, the entire impetus of us sitting here in this room right now talking about Shenmue 3 started with the idea of Christmas, what, 2019, 2020 or or something— Jennifer asked for Shenmue 3 as like a gift. So I got her a copy of Shenmue 3. It was available in stores at the time. And then she was like, hey, let's play the other two games. And I guess like, you know, you two talked and figured out, hey, maybe we should like cover these games. And now we have two episodes of fairly old 
podcast at this point of the like that's a shed mood in which we talk about one and two one of the uh pod listen i think i'm generally uh, pretty good at titles that is one of the ones that like the second after i hit publish on the first episode i was just non-stop regretting that name choice <laughs> <laughs> it's a little too pat but it's it's fine it's indicative of where we were as a site at the time but <laughs> I'll, I'll read it generously there yeah but regardless you know and what happened was we played through one and two and i remember like these games like just enchanted us i even went back and listened to those old episodes i have a hard time like i try listening to the first shed mood and my voice is like all different and it's like a weird thing but generally speaking we were pretty positive on shenmue one and two and then some life shit happened and we got we're super delayed and we're like well eventually we'll get the shenmue three mm-hmm. and here we are yeah it's so like we yeah. have a well we have a different narrative gaming podcast and it would kind of make sense to finally give Shenmue 3 a look so let's go ahead and take a look and give a more cohesive narrative arc than Shenmue 3 provides hey oh yeah yeah uh, at the top uh just like quick like one or two sentence uh what how do you generally feel about Shenmue 3 just to get this out of the way uh, Jen, you can go first. Okay. At times it was a... At, at times it felt like I was, uh... What's the guy who rolls the bowler, boulder Sisyphus. in? Who? Sisyphus. Sisyphus. At times it felt like a Sisyphean effort to get the game finished. And other times I was just looking at what was around me and thinking... It's a miracle that this happened, but also it feels like something that should, that can never happen again. Six, you go, and then I'll save my thought. <laughs> sure, sure. thought this might be how this goes. Um, I was pretty disappointed by Shenmue 3. Um, I think Shenmue 3 is a game that has some things I still admire about it, has some neat ideas and plays with some good material, but I think it suffers from a, a, like a big problem with like project scale as opposed to what they could actually achieve. And then also suffers from Yu Suzuki. And I, 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 this is one of those auteur things, right? Like obviously there were a lot of people involved in this development and maybe it's unfair to, to pile too much on one man, but right now I'm being negative and I feel better being mean to auteurs than being nice to auteurs. So, um, Yu Suzuki like proudly talking about how he doesn't play other games. And it's like, yeah, I can fucking tell, bud, because you made some really stupid choices with this game. Not just like, oh, you you couldn't keep you couldn't keep your vision in check with your budget. You just had bad ideas. Um and I'm ultimately pretty disappointed. I will just read one line from my extensive I have 23 pages of notes. Holy shit. <laughs> um I have one line. I think this will set the tone. This game reminds me of a time where a friend once gave another friend a marble covered in 100 layers of duct tape as a gift. Yeah, Kyrie, uh, playing this game while Kyrie played this game uh, was a lot of messages of Kyrie just 
boiling mad. <laughs> I I have cooled off a little bit. Like to expand on that a little more, this felt like an extremely frustrating game to attempt to peel back every single frustrating, annoying layer to eventually get to a conclusion that isn't even worth it in the end. And it's like, there are so many aspects of Shenmue 3 that in isolation, I could look, I could like. In fact, there are some things in this game that I actually love and think are cool. And they did, like, they almost got there. But the biggest problem Shenmue 3 is, has, just in general, is that it's lack of willingness to learn from the changes to the gaming industry in the past 20 years has basically this is the version of Shenmue that exists in Jeff Gersman's mind when he says that this is a game for assholes like yeah yeah like if you just showed someone Shenmue 3 in isolation they would totally agree that this is a pretentious fucking game for assholes that goes nowhere when the previous two games are nowhere near that. <laughs> yeah. And I think now's a good time to dive into those previous two games just to set the stage for where things were before we got to Shenmue three. Yeah. Let's, let's start on there. Let's start on that note. Okay. Yeah. I've got, I've got summaries for all three games here that I've written up. Um, let's start. We get, well, we'll you know I'll I'll read the Shenmue one one if if we want to take a break there and talk about Shenmue one if we only need to get through all three whatever we do we'll figure it out we'll figure it out because here we go. All right, let's do it. <clears throat> High schooler Ryo Hazuki comes home to discover his house is under attack. He rushes to the attached family dojo, where his instructor and father Iwao is fighting a harsh-looking man in a silk robe who identifies himself as Lan Di. Lan Di is here for a strange mirror in Iwao's possession, and once he has it, he kills the elder Hazuki, claiming it is in revenge for a man Iwao killed, named Xiao Shenming. Uh, Ryo attempts immediate revenge and is effortlessly defeated by Lan Di. Despite his father's last wish for him to live a simple life and the concern of those around him, Ryo embarks on a quest of revenge. His friends and neighbors do their best to support him as he doggedly chases down leads through his hometown, asking alarming and unhelpful questions like, where can I find Chinese people? He picks fights with sailors from a nearby port, gets scammed out of his life savings, kicks a struggle between small gangs into a full war, works as a dock worker for a week, gets his best friend kidnapped, and then rescues her. He also discovers that the mirror that Landi took was one of a pair, a dragon mirror to match a phoenix mirror. Ryo finds the phoenix mirror hidden in his home and takes it with him to make sense of its importance. In the end, Ryo boards a boat for Hong Kong. All the clues lead there. A letter sent from Hong Kong by a man named Yuan De Shu warning Iwao about Landi's intentions, the trail of Landi himself, and the mystery of the mirrors. It is said that when they are united, they will unleash a mythical beast that will destroy the world. But that can't be true. Can it? Shenmue 1. So, quickly, like, my thoughts on Shenmue 1. It is very much a game of ambition. It is a game of, like... I, I remember watching this incredible, like, video. And there's also, like, this really great document documentary... Or not documentary, like, old... 
footage from like a Japanese t- television station. They did like an hour special on Shenmue. I need to find it and I'll send you like the link to that to put in the show notes because it's like really revealing. But like Yu Suzuki and the gaming audience as a whole literally did not have a term for this kind of game at the time. You have to mm-hmm. remember that in the release of Shenmue 1, probably one of the best looking games that had come before that was like, like characters looked like, like look at like character models from like Metal Gear Solid 1. Like these super blocky, super pixelated, like, you know, vague amorphous shapes of people. And then heads that vibrate when they're talk. Exactly. <laughs> then here comes Shenmue where characters have like the jump is insane. The characters have individual articulate fingers, highly expressive faces. Even your like low key NPCs look believably like people, people animate like people you go around and you do mindless tasks in a big open world in a environment in which like the very idea that you could waste time in a big open world was actually a novel and frankly groundbreaking thing. Like you could just go and look at things and mess around with stuff and talk with people. This was like to that point in RPGs or whatever, it was mostly just text on a screen here every character has like a has like voice lines every single person has a voice line a schedule and things like that this was a massive jump and that cannot be understated that Chenmu like like Yu Suzuki attempted to coin a term like like they called the term like free which is like full reactive eyes entertainment or whatever like we now have the language for it oh it's an open world game but a game like Shenmue literally had not existed before this time. Yeah, it's an open world adventure game, an adventure in the modern sense, not in the old point and click sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also important to realize that at the time, this was one of the most expensive video games ever made. Like mm-hmm. when it initially came out, people were pegging around seventy million, but. Uh, you, even after Yu Suzuki kind of clarified and said it was closer to 47 million because the 70 million was kind of combining Shenmue 1 and 2, it was still a situation where a big publisher slash platform just poured ungodly amounts of money into this idea, this idea that was completely groundbreaking and revolutionary, and it flopped big time. <laughs> like, uh... The whole console, the Dreamcast, flopped as well, but, like, this game did not sell. <laughs> I mean, it's Shenmue 1 sold 1.2 million copies, and for, for the year 2000, that isn't bad. Right. Yeah, that, that's not bad, but it's also not recouping $47 million. Sure. Also, real <laughs> quick, like, the, you know, if we even go with the basic number that, like, Shenmue cost, like, fucking, like, seven, how much was it, 70 million or 7 million? Yeah. 70 yeah three four five six that's a lot of zeros i'm just gonna plug it into a basic calculator 70 million dollars in 1997 which is just roughly around when this game would start like that is worth 127 million dollars in today's money like that's a lot of money that is like the budget that is like pretty close to the budget of most triple a games to this day 
Quite. And not to spoil things, but Shenmue 2 sold about a tenth as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, developmental cost wasn't co- didn't cost as much because originally this game was like a it was a Saturn game that eventually got ported to the Dreamcast, but they were doing simultaneous work on Shenmue 1 and 2. And also, mm-hmm. you know, when when it came time to develop Shenmue 2, they had the engine, the tools, the language, like the team was able to better and more efficiently communicate and do the things that they were trying to do with Shenmue 1. Because again, Shenmue 1 was, we were like, developers at the time were in absolutely, completely unexplored, like, territory at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I think Shenmue 1 is a game about basically, like, no, you don't actually want to be in a kung fu movie. It would suck. Yeah, and, <laughs> that's, what the, yeah. that's what the game's about. Yeah, and there's also like there's like I like the narrative arc of this game is like it is kind of like facing that reality. But even then, Rio does have a like he grows, he changes, he bumps up against people that like exploit and hurt him. But like the big climactic moment in this in Shenmue One is him finally knocking Chai into the into the bay. This creature that had basically harassed him and stole his money and like basically you know just just would you would encounter him and you would barely survive the encounter and the final moments of Shenmue 1 is you finally like overcoming that and you're like the martial arts master you were working with saying okay you're strong enough to go to Hong Kong yeah more broadly, the sto- the way the story itself dives into, like, Ryo is, like, it sucks that he lost his dad, like, that's a sincere tragedy, but he is surrounded by people who care for him, e- even people who, like, he meets in pursuit of Landi, like, uh... The people that he meets in the warehouse, they they are interested in protecting him too. Like, he's just constantly running into people in Japan, in his little town, that want to support him. And instead of, like, going along with them or, like, say, traveling with Nozomi to Canada or... Yeah, there's, there's a version of the story where Ryo does not pursue this, he listens to his father's advice, goes to Canada with Nozomi, and lives a happy life. Yeah, he, he drops out of school, he does all these things, he basically, as you're investigating things, you are also, in certain ways, like, like sing- wrenching sing- singular fingers off of the protections that Rio has here. And uh, by the end... By the time you're heading out on this boat, like, it's all almost kind of too late for him to turn back. And it's kind of tragic just abandoning all these people who really care for him and, like, could give him a pretty fulfilling life in order to chase chase down this adventure. In the ultimate pursuit of killing someone. Yeah, it's, I mean, like, Shenmue 1 is is, I think you nailed it, is kind of a tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. Because throughout the game, you are encountering moment after moment where Ryo could just cho- choose to have a good life, and he chooses the other thing. Yep. Even in little ways, right? And this is a thing that, like, 
it kind of bummed me out playing, but I, I think in Shenmue 1, it makes sense where like you go into the local ramen shop and the, and the dude's like, oh, hey man, I'll, I'll whip you up a fresh, you know, a fresh bowl of ramen for free on the house. Sit down. And Ryo's like, I don't have time for that. I have to find some sailors. It's like, Ryo, eat the ramen. Right. It's good ramen. <laughs> but more to the point, it is that sense of like Ryo rejecting these things because, you know, he is so steadfast in his, like, want and desire to, like, get revenge on Landy. You have the arc of Inesan, the, like, um, Doge's, like, housekeeper, who is basically the mother figure in this story, who, you know, she, like, you know, places his allowance every day on, like, the step, and you talk with her, and she eventually reluctantly gives you the letter that helps you down your quest. Because even though Inesan knows that, like, Ryo is going to get himself in a lot of danger and get hurt and things are going to change for him. She also has that tragic realization that she cannot stop him. Yeah. And it's like Shenmue as a series, as a story, like there's a reason why the main theme of Shenmue, I think, is in a minor key. This is a sad story. Or at least it should Mm -hmm. be. But yeah, it's a, like, it is a story of someone, like, and we'll get into it later when I think we talk a little bit more specific about Landy and things like that, but, or I'll just say it now, it's like, think about it. When Ryo eventually, if we ever get there, defeats Landy, what does he have? Yeah. He's gonna have nothing. He'll have destroyed his life, and for what? the pursuit of a man who barely knows him who's just had his own goals and ideas or whatever and he'll kill him or whatever and he's just gonna be like Rio is gonna have that moment where he looks at like the life he chose to destroy and there's gonna be nothing and that is so deeply deeply tragic which is like you know people talk about oh it's like a Hong Kong action film ever notice how a lot of Hong Kong action films have to have like super depressing and downer endings that seem to come out of nowhere it's because that story in its like when you actually think about it is super depressing and a downer and like it's not it's a deconstruction of those but it's not in a it's not a deconstruction in the like the like condescending way of like no you don't understand your story wouldn't work right it gets into that in ways right where like in in the Hong Kong version of this, you would have in the movie version of this, assuming it was sticking to the form, what you'd have is the scene where Rio's like, I have to go to Hong Kong and he buys a ticket and he goes. And instead you go to a, a shady like travel agency and you buy a ticket and then you come back and they say, What ticket? What are you talking about? And so you have to like threaten the dude with violence and then he tells you to come back and then he ambushes you with thugs and then some fucking weirdo crumples up your ticket and eats it and you're nowhere and you've lost your life savings. Yeah. Rio's <laughs> story is sad and a tragedy. And also kind of just hilarious in moments like that, yes, too. Yes, actually, too. Because sometimes Shenmue could be a very funny and stupid game. Sometimes Shenmue is about a, a bald man who looks like Gollum running around and going, kick, kick, And also, just like, we don't learn how how consequential this is until the second game. But here's a, here's a bit of foreshadowing as to how Ryo's journey is going to go at best. Landi came here to avenge his father. 
<laughs> you heard about cycles of revenge. Yep. Um, but I so think yeah. that's like, I think that like, so I think we're kind of like leaning towards it. Like that's like Shenmue 1. That's the context of like encountering like Shenmue 1 back in like 1999 or whatever. And even to this day, I remember us playing Shenmue 1 and being like, this story is still affecting and powerful. And it still works. Like, honestly, for all the shit that we're about to say about Shenmue 3 or whatever, you really should go back and play those HD re-releases of 1 and 2. They are oh, they're stunning. absolutely stunning. And I think we'll get into that because you then get one of the greatest open world action RPGs or whatever, whatever you want to call it, of all time in Shenmue 2. I would be tempted to call it one of the top 10 games of all time. It's so fucking good. Shenmue 2. Arriving in Hong Kong, Ryo seeks out Yuan De Shu, the Kung Fu master who sent a letter of warning to his father about Lan Di, albeit too late. Out of his depth in a foreign country, he gets robbed again and ends up surviving due to the help offered by local biker girl Joy. He stumbles around Hong Kong until he ends up under the wing of Liu Xiaotao, the grandmaster of Manmo Temple. Against her better judgment, Zhu teaches him to further refine his kung fu, though she stops short of offering aid in his quest, refusing to endorse his pursuit of revenge. Following the trail of Yuan Shu, Ryo heads next to Kowloon City. There he befriends gang leader and thief Ren, who helps Ryo find Zhu. Zhu is hiding from the Chi Yomen, which is a powerful organized crime group whose leadership includes Lan Di. After much struggle, Ryo and Ren fight their way through a Chi Yomen hideout and rescue Zhu. Landy makes a brief appearance, but deems the situation beneath him and instead leaves for Bailu Village, a small settlement in the mountains to the north. Now safe, Zhu explains that Landy is the son of Xiao Sunming, the man Landy accused Ryo's father of killing. He also explains that the two mirrors, Dragon and Phoenix, combine to make a key. Zhu, pays, Zhu places little stock in the idea that they'll summon some world-destroying monster and says instead that they will resurrect the Qing Dynasty. Ryo chases Landi north to Bailu Village. On his way there, he encounters and saves from drowning a girl named Shenhua, who has been present in dreams and crosscuts in both games. She leads him back to Bailu Village and explains that she is the daughter of a stonemason, and Bailu Village is where the Dragon and Phoenix mirrors were made, cut out of the special Phantom Riverstone native only to Bailu. Her attempt to introduce him to her father is complicated by the discovery that he's missing. What he left behind at the quarry is a massive relief of the two mirrors, and as we go to credits, Ryo has more questions than ever. Shenmue 2. Shenmue 2 kicks ass. (laughs) So good. It's important to know also, in terms of this one's initial release, is that uh, it came out um, on Dreamcast in Japan, but Microsoft... uh, I think Japan and Europe... I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Europe got, like, like the PAL regions got, like, a release on Dreamcast. Okay, yeah. Um, anyway, but sorry, for, I was breaking you off. Go ahead. North America, Microsoft decided to buy it as an exclusive for the Xbox and even shipped it with a second DVD that basically acted as a compilation film explaining what happened in Shenmue 1. Um, 
for some reason, it wasn't as warmly received as, like, Shenmue 1, just in terms of, like, I think the graphics had kind of moved on a little bit past Dreamcast, and also... For well, I mean, <laughs> like you said, the Xbox was out, the PS2 was out, and they were, even though the Dreamcast could outperform those machines in some ways, graphically, the PS2 and the Xbox left the Dreamcast in the dust. That's true, yeah. <laughs> So it's not, it's no longer the most beautiful game on the block or whatever. So that kind of, that kind of contributed it to its, uh, it didn't sell well. <laughs> no. And I think also at this point, the Shenmue, Shenmue had a certain reputation, right? Which I think a, a big part of Shenmue's legacy, I don't think it would have necessarily been a big success, but I do think it was m massively hurt by the decision made by uh, Yu Suzuki to handle all of the English voice acting in-house in Japan, mm -hmm. which meant that they were hiring anyone around who spoke native English and making them do voice acting, whether or not they were an actual voice actor. Yeah. You know, the, the, the voice acting is, is infamous. Yes. Um, I have vivid memories of the uh, G4 show X-Play reviewing Shenmue 2, and they are talking about Shenmue, and they would just, like... That they would do, like, basically what they did was they just took a bunch of out-of-context clips from, like, Shenmue, the series, and made some, let's say, off-color jokes that were, you know, indicative of early 2000s humor. But, yeah, the reputation of Shenmue 2 preceded it. It was a weird, awkward game that Yu Suzuki fully admitted that most of his casting process for the English voices were, I kid you not based on what the actor looked like. <laughs> so you've got this, like, weird mix where some characters were, like, decently performed. I still think, like, like, Ryo's voice, it's awkward and stilted, but at the same time, there's, like, at least a charm to it. But then mm -hmm. you could just... Like I said, I feel like at this point in the podcast, you could just play a couple clips of the English dub from 1 and 2. Wang Sun? Huh? How do you know my name? Oh, sorry. You look just like someone I know. Oh, really? Are you Japanese? Yes. I live in a place called Yokosuka. Yokosuka? That's where my little brother works. And you kind of, like, get the vibe that the voice acting isn't great. Mario, would you teach me some Italian? Oh, of course. Buono means good. Okay, thanks. Mario, would you teach me some Italian? Oh, of course. Amore means love. Okay, thanks. Yeah, in terms of all-time performances in Shenmue 2... I often think about like the 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 villain that you run into who like is interested in like expensive birds and is constantly talking like this. No, this thing stinks. <laughs> and it's almost like going for a it, it's almost going for like a Southie accent in Boston at times, it feels like. That's generous for a character in the Japanese. That's uh, just a, like, bad trans joke. Yeah, that's just, just a, you know, 
a queer joke. Um, queer affect, trans, yeah. gay, depends on the localization. <laughs> um, but, like, and the thing is, you know, it's worth saying, the, the modern releases, if you get it on PS4 or PC or Xbox now, um, that version of the game has the option for Japanese, the original Japanese voices. Um, if you are the kind of person who wants to go along for the fun ride of the bad dub, that's valid. I do think it kind of shifts the tone of the game for you. It does. Where you're yeah. inclined to take it more as a joke, as opposed to the Japanese voice acting, which is just bog standard anime voice acting. <laughs> Nothing special, but nothing offensive. But at the very right, least, it doesn't it doesn't get in the way. Yeah, but Rio's voice actor. Um, I remember uh, when we watched the Shenmue anime uh, earlier this year, and how like okay, Rio's voice actor is back in Japanese, and he puts out a pretty good performance. You know. Hey boy, and it's like, and you can tell even when you listen to the original Japanese that like Ryo is supposed to be awkward and stilted and a little wooden because like the man is like, I mean, he's a kid. I mean, that's the thing the narrative sometimes forgets that like Ryo is like, what, 18, 19, something like that. Like he's not, he is supposed to represent naivety. Like he's still figuring out how the world works. He's surrounded like by people like Joy and Ren who are like, okay, I know how shit actually works and I'm trying to teach this kid to keep him from killing himself, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but yes, like a as infamous as that English dub is, there are still moments of like the story, the writing in it of itself is still really fantastic. I, like, Shenmue 2 is really incredible at really selling the idea, that specific idea of you are lost and you don't know where to go and you don't know who you can trust or reach out to. Mm -hmm. I guess we should also mention that uh, these first two games were also the games that coined the entire idea of quick time events. Like, that specifically was a marketing term used for Shenmue 1 and... Its mechanics have carried on through games, like, even today. Sure. Makes you wonder why Shenmue 3 is so fucking bad at them. Yup. Um, yup. Because in <laughs> 2, at the very least, like, the frame windows that you had to, like, hit the buttons, the, like... Yeah, it was still a little stilted and archaic, but, you know, remember, Yu Suzuki is an arcade designer. So, you know, yeah. if, you t if you put out a game of Shenmue in the arcades... And it would just be like, you know, it's like a dragon's layer, right? Is it dragon's uh -huh. layer? Yeah, mm -hmm. dragon's layer. Um, where it's like, okay, hit this button for this thing to happen. But in Shenmue 2, they still, at the very least, um, did some stuff to make it a little bit more forgiving. Certain chase sequences would be, you know, refined to a certain way where you could fail one or two and the story will still progress. But if you mm -hmm. did fail, you could at least jump back to the beginning of the scene or beforehand. Again, mm -hmm. Shenmue 2 is still rough. But again, it's still largely attempting to innovate in a space that it inadvertently created. Although, part of the reason why the space, like, you know, like, part of the reason why, like, I imagine Shenmue 2 had, like, such a rocky reception isn't so much 
okay, so it was on original Xbox, but this was like what two thousand one or something like two thousand two. It came out on Xbox. Two. A funny little game had come out before that. It was called Grand Theft Auto Three. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. The at that point, people would like basically you know look at Shenmue. Now, listen, the the legacy of Grand Theft Auto is complicated <laughs> yeah to but, say yeah. the least but you cannot deny gta 3 was an extremely popular game and it was like the defining open world action game at that point because instead like i mean you could very quickly sell the appeal of gta 3 in a trailer and stuff like that Two. And three was three was like a game like as an open world game and as the one that sort of popularized the idea of an open world game, it very much set the tone of like an open world game is a game where no one can say no to you. And Shenmue is about saying no all the time. Right. Like, I do not like the GTA games, to be clear, but I understand mm. their influence and even, you know. Later open world games that I do have affection for do take cues from them. Like, well, I mean, we're going to talk about this like a little bit later, but, you know, I really like the Yakuza series. And the Yakuza series still has those moments of, like, characters who don't say no. You know, you know oh, it's your big, you know, you could do whatever, whatever, man. But there's still, like, roadblocks and obstacles that are a little closer to, like, what Shenmue was kind of going for. There's also something to be said for just how smart its method of like detection works in terms of just like pushing Rio from one side of the story to the other like you don't necessarily use a map like you can get a map in Shenmue 2 but you have to buy it yes but you have to buy it and also like the way you're more or less going to be moving around in Shenmue 1 and 2 is like walking up to people and asking them about your objective and if they know a thing they'll basically point you where you need to go or, Shenmue 2. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You're about to say the same I'm going to say. Yeah. Before. Shenmue 2, like, added the extra feature that sometimes when you come up to someone and ask them, they're like, hey, I'm going there right now. You want to follow along? And you just hit a button and you can just walk along with them. And it does a great job of making people feel less like they're there to dispense information to you and more like they're living, breathing participants in this world. Right. Right. It's like the classic thing in like in JRPGs, right, is if you have an objective and you talk to someone who isn't the person you're supposed to talk to, they just say something completely unrelated. Whereas here and and Shenmue 3 continues this in a way that I think is still pretty good. But like Shenmue 3, I'm using this example just because it's most top of my mind. You can walk up to a person and say like, hey, do you know where this temple is? And the person is like, are you fucking blind? It's right there and points five feet away. Right. But at least in, like, two, so in Shinmu 2, like, you, like said, you had, like, kind of varying degrees and layers of information. You had people who would say, basically, tell Ryo to, like, no, go away. Or you'd have people that say, I'm not sure, but I'm sorry. You know, just to kind of apologize. Or the people that kind of vaguely knows, it's like, oh, I heard it's in that direction. Or the people who just know and take you there. Or, mm -hmm. or no, point you in the right direction. Or the top level, like you said, is random person's like, I know exactly where you're talking about, and I'm going there right now. Follow me. Like, 
you got this sense that the people in this living, breathing city, which, to be clear, some of the designs of the city are a little comical, like Kowloon in specific, the big dilapidated buildings everywhere that have, like, hilariously stupid, like, elevator-like systems that would make mm-hmm. it impossible to actually live here. But, you know, that aside, you've got the sensation that people live here. And generally speaking, when you interact with people, some people are very helpful and some people are just not. And this game has an understanding of that degree. Yeah, and Shenmue 2 is also where they kind of take the training wheels off to some degree. Like, there's the moment at the beginning where you get robbed and you're more or less spending most of the game getting just enough money to um, eke by and pay your hotel room and things like that. Right, the uh, hotel guy, the hotel owner who's an asshole and, like, demands, you know, the money up front and you're broke because you just got robbed and it's like... Right, it really feels hostile in a way that, well, I mean, you're an 18-year-old with almost no money going to a country that you don't know. It's not going to work out, even in the kindest of situations. Like, I've been there. I traveled to Japan at one point with my Japanese being super bad. Not that anybody was actively hostile, but just, I just didn't know how shit worked. Yeah, and it makes it all the more... It's smart that this is the game that kind of introduces, like, a recurring cast of characters, because when you're in that desperate of a situation, these you end up running into these people, um, specifically Joy and Ren, and also, like, the various masters you come across. And uh, the fact that they're willing to help you in some way, either for ulterior motives or out of the kindness of their heart, like... It makes you very attached to them almost instantly. And honest, I think we we kind of like talked about it, but honestly, one of the biggest like advantages Shenmue Two has narratively and mechanically in almost every single way is the inter- introduction of Shi Yun Hong. Right, as she acts as your that's the character, right. I don't know who you're talking the about. The woman, the the martial arts master. Oh yes, yes. Uh, you gotta, I mean, you gotta call her Li Shaotao. Li Shaotao. Don't use her fucking. Oh, don't call oh, her real name. Oh, She's got a Li Shaotao. Use her master name, sorry, please. Sorry, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> most uh, sorry for my disrespect. <laughs> Li Shaotao. Li Shaotao really kind of makes this whole adventure click because at first, one Rio is disrespectful uh, to her. And because, like, oh, a woman being a martial arts master, you know, making Ryo a little bit of a, of a dick at first is good, narratively. That means he has room to grow. But mm-hmm. Li Xiaotao instantly, instantly clocks Ryo as the type of person that would do this dumb revenge quest and does everything in her power to make sure that she imparts very specifically to him, this is a bad idea, Ryo. And the... Even the meaningless tasks that she assigns you to, the ones of like moving the books or learning to catch the blossom from the tree, is there to teach Ryo very important things. Patience, you know, perseverance, and like, and when you finally like try and fight her, you realize you're super outmatched because she's trying to show you there are people, there's always going to be someone stronger. She is Li Xiao Tao, like is a very, like, 
she's a great character because she is well she's complicated she's like she recognizes rio is on this like big revenge quest and like someone in her life went on a revenge quest and got themselves killed and she does not want that to happen but also at the same time she realizes as basically this child's elder as the adult in the room if she doesn't equip him with the tools to deal with this she feels like on some level just as culpable for what is about to happen mm-hmm. and she's also like but also listen if you told me like like if you showed me the person who got my who killed my brother I'd probably make the same fucking mistake, right? Like she, there are a lot of layers. She she is probably the most complicated character the com- we've met so far. She is the most complicated, interesting, well performed in both English and Japanese. They actually kind of nailed it for her like vocal performance as just this sort of like she doesn't have venom in her voice, but just beleaguered like like she is clearly gone through it. And she's seeing, like, wide-eyed, naive Rio and realizing, like, oh, shit, I gotta do something about this kid. <laughs> like, she, she fucking, like, like the same way that you would find, like, just, I don't know, like, you, like, she has, like, tons of conflict and interest in, like, like her presence in the story is so important to making Shenmue 2 work as a game and as a story. Yeah. And another thing that I think is really important about Shenmue 2 is it feels like it sort of shows the start of this arc that is one of the things I do kind I feel mixed about but is interesting going into Shenmue 3, which is this idea that okay, so Shenmue 1 is Rio was like, "Okay, I am going to star in this kung fu movie." And everyone around him being like, "No, you're not." And by the time of Shenmue 2, he is starting to descend into the movie a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it is the case that for some reason there are martial arts masters all over the place. It is the place. It is the case that Kowloon City is centered around a huge tower full of bad guys guarded by dudes with spears. Yeah. Like the movie is starting to leak into reality. Yeah. You even have like he's even starting to take this whole mirror thing seriously and is more or less seeing himself and. Others are seeing him as in this way as well as like, okay, he needs to do something about these mirrors and it's kind of his responsibility because he has one of them. The constant like refrain when we eventually meet Shenhua is that like she says this poem that has been passed down for generations. <sighs> the fucking poem. The fucking, okay, the fucking poem is bad and I hate like like destiny as like a concept and narrative. How and I, I also just hate the way they say it every five every fucking five. seconds. God damn it. However... <laughs> narratively the point of that kind of like prophetic poem or whatever Mm -hmm. is there to set the tone right it is there to show that like the first line is he does not know the strength that is within him Mm -hmm. and it's like that is the game making its thesis statement explicitly clear that rio has a hidden potential that he is not even aware of and that somehow regarding these deaths like these mirrors and these like the people he encounters this is his destiny and it is like as you say i think it's it's badly it's badly written and it's overused but i do fundamentally think it's a good thing again the further descent into the movie right like 
every step of his journey, he's getting further and further into this Kung Fu movie and concluding with in two after he's like, okay, I went from Hong Kong to this, you know, strange walled city that's full of crime. And now I'm just going to walk to a city, to a village in the mountains, a mythical village in the mountains. And along the way, I meet a girl who says, you're the boy from the legend. That is movie shit. <laughs> right. Like in the full poem, by the way, like works really well to kind of like, you know, contextualize or attempt to contextualize the whole series. Like he shall appear from an Eastern land far across the sea and like, Later down the, like, line, you get, like, you know, his courage shall determine his fate. But the last line at the beginning, at, like, Shenmue 1 is, like, a pitch black night unfolds with the morning star as its only light, and thus the saga begins. Yeah, when they, at the end of Shenmue 1, when they're reading out the poem, um, and the text is on the screen as well, and the music is just swelling, like, <laughs> that might be one of the narrative high points for the whole thing, or, like, the mood high points. <laughs> right, because you have this poem that has that is dripping with meaning and ancient, like, prophecy attached to it, being attached to Rio, right? And it's like, you can sit there and wonder about it, because, like, is it sort of you know, the movie leaking into Rio's life or more is Rio interpreting these events because he is descending further and further into his revenge quest and is using confirmation bias to kind of figure out like what's going on. And sometimes the narrative kind of stumbles on this, but sometimes the narrative makes it extremely unclear and that's a good thing. Yeah. And there's something to be said for the fact that this character, Shenhua, is someone that you see on the cover of Shenmue 1. You see her on the attract screen when you're just letting the Dreamcast do its thing and run. You're seeing mm -hmm. her in various dreams, but you never meet her until the very end of Shenmue 2. And that creates the sensation that Yu Suzuki, like, has an, a grand vision of where he wants this to go and is going to... If you give him the time and resources, we'll make it happen. Right. And the moment... He doesn't have a grand vision. <laughs> yeah, let's, that's what we're going to get to. That will be clear. However, <laughs> I will say, one of my favorite parts of Shenmue 2 really is that ending in which Ryo ends up in Bailu Village and just has a long, extended conversation with Shenmue. So it is incredible. Because now this girl that has been talked about hyped up whatever for two games for like three years at this point you finally get to meet her and then you realize she's like like she is like a complicated like and shenmue too a fairly complicated person she is like she's weird and she's reciting this poem but also you get the sense that she's deeply attached to the village that she's from that she has a lot of history and that encountering mm -hmm. rio really is like it's a sort of destiny for her, too, because she realizes, like, it suddenly crystallizes for her, oh, I have a part in this story. And you just get to talk with her. You just get to talk about, like, your friends back home and, like, what life is like. And in one of the most gorgeous, affecting, moving sequences I've ever encountered in a video game, she... Rio and Shenhua are in a cave. They are making their multi-day trek back to Bailu Village. And 
Rio is awoken by the sound of a song. And you go outside and you see Shenhua singing this gorgeous song to no one in particular, to the night sky, framed with this incredible tree in this beautiful ravine. And you as the player have the opportunity to hit the button, to skip it, to interrupt her, or whatever. But you don't, or you shouldn't at the very least, because... <laughs> You should. This is the moment. This is the crystallizing moment of the game that says, "No, you need to slow down. You need to appreciate what is around you. You need to like just know that life will go on and life will continue." And it's beautiful and affecting. And games have been trying to recreate that moment for a long time, and some kind of get there, like. Like one of my favorite parts of like the original like Life is Strange is like you occasionally get moments where you know the characters are just listening to music and you can hit the button at any time to like advance the story, but it's very clear it's like the storytellers and the writers or whatever of these games are just saying no, just take a moment to breathe, and it's and it's in the middle of a sequence like and i think like you know i my i replayed all of shenmue 1 for this i replayed some of shenmue 2 before realizing i should get through three before i record Uh um but like my recollection is the segment it's like an hour long segment of you and shenhua just walking your way to bailu village talking getting to know each other having some awkward small talk now and then and then taking care of little like chores along the way, right? Like when you stop at that cave, it's like, okay, Rio, go find some firewood. And you just sort of stumble around and look at sticks and you're like, mm, that one's too wet. I can't use that. Right. Like it really like captures that moment of like, again, the reality of this quest coming crashing down because like fires don't happen in Stilling or whatever. But you still get an opportunity for the narrative, for the game to tell the player just slow down take it in don't rush through and that works so incredibly well in this game especially because like the hour or two before you get to this like final hour of the game is some of the most like bombastic action sequence shit you've ever seen you're fighting through this tower you're fighting a weird tiger man in a cage at one point <laughs> to rescue joy who has nowhere in the narrative when he shows up and rio's like well i've got to kick this guy's ass then you get to the top of the tower you fight a bunch of like men in black you like break shit you're on the roof you're fighting the big guy who kicked your ass earlier and you see landy flying away on a goddamn helicopter as you shake your fist and he just stares and gives you a good smoldering look and you're like oh man where do we go from here you go to this beautiful serene moment of possible peace and that's incredible games quite frankly do not get better than that sometimes like, <laughs> yeah you even get like the meaning of the title because it turns out Shenmue is Chinese for sedge tree and there's a gigantic sedge tree right outside of Shenhua's house a gorgeously it's a, rendered tree that just is just, mm. it's, yeah the tree of destiny and uh turns out it's one of the few things that they also did a good job with it well I we, there are parts of level architecture and stuff in three that look quite. We good. are shall we <laughs> shall we get onto Shenmue three? We are yeah an hour <laughs> okay. and fifteen minutes. Okay, in. okay. The last thing I'll say is that anyone who listens to this podcast, 
we are probably about to take one of the biggest craps on Shenmue 3 <laughs> you have ever well, heard. Kyrie is. I will. Well, I'm saying. Well, I'm, I'm just saying. We're probably. We're probably going to be pretty down. We're going to be pretty down. But I hope that you've listened to the last 45 minutes or hour 15, whatever, of us praising this game to understand that we are coming from this from a place of love. As much as I don't like this game, it should be fairly clear to our audience that we have a passion for these games. We love what they do. Shenmue is such a such a fucking special thing. Like I said, go back, play those HD remixes or re-releases of 1 and 2. You are going to have an incredible time. Shenmue 3. Let's do it. Shaking off the shock of this relief of the mirrors, Ryo and Shenhua head back to the village. It appears thugs have been assaulting and kidnapping the town's stonemasons, and this is what has become of Shenhua's father. In the course of their investigation, they also discover that the mirrors were created some 70 years ago by commission of the Emperor. It appears that they are the keys to opening a secret cache of imperial treasure. Ryo beats up the thugs, then Shenhua tortures their leader to get him to reveal where they've taken her dad. Niawu. That's our next stop. In Niawu, Ryo does his normal asking weirdly pointed questions routine until he runs into the Red Snakes, a local gang that is clearly working for the Chiyo men and has Shenhua's father. Ryo has various struggles as he battles against the Red Snakes and their leader, but just as he goes for the final showdown against their boss, he finds that they're gone. They've relocated to the nearby Niawu castle and they kidnap Shenhua in the process. Pause. This is not my summary. That is... 95% of the game. Yep. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Now the last 5%. <clears throat> Ryo joins forces with Ren, who happens to be in town, as well as a few people Ryo befriended over the course of the Niawu segment of three, and they mount their assault on the castle. Matters are ca- complicated by Niao's son, another leader of the Chiyomen, who sees Landi as a rival. She's the one who kidnapped Shenhua, and she demands the Phoenix Mirror in exchange for her life. Ryo cooperates, and then Yawu sets fire to the castle, hoping to burn Landy alive and take over his territory. At the top of the castle, Ryo fights Landy and loses, but it's a little closer this time, and he makes good his escape while Landy is distracted by a thing. The Chiyu men have both mirrors now, but Ryo and company aren't giving up just yet. Now they're walking along the Great Wall of China for some reason. The story goes on. <laughs> Holy Shenmue 3. shit. Before we get into... everything uh, before we get into everything related to Shenmue 3 we should get into like the context of how people discovered a Shenmue 3 was happening because essentially I believe in 2016 or 2015 2015 Mm -hmm. um I there's a reason why I know that date almost to a T 2015 um Sony decides at their E3 press conference that they're going to bring out Yu Suzuki. They're going to just shock everyone by revealing Shenmue 3 here. Not that they're publishing it, just the link to the Kickstarter campaign. Yes, they are the official... They're basically the people who are officially launching the Kickstarter campaign for this game. (laughs) Or at least pointing people to the link. (laughs) Yes, and after this happens, like, it's blows 
it blows past many of the records that Kickstarter previously had for video games. Like, it raised over $6 million. Um, However, uh, Yu Suzuki, by the way, still said he was... uh, Okay, he said he would not be disappointed by this, but he's basically said, like, but if you really want it to be Shenmue 3, it's going to have to be 10 million. <laughs> but yeah, but also just even 6 million, even 10 million is significantly less than 47 million. It just sure. putting that sure. out there. Um, over time, they pick up more development partners and uh, a publisher just because 6 million was not enough to do what they needed to do. Um Sony helps develop. Um, Sony helps fund some of it. Uh, Deep Silver helps fund the rest of it. Uh, it launches with a temporary exclusivity for the Epic Game Store, which pisses off a lot of people to the point where the to the point where I think it was Epic's, Epic. Yeah. Epic was like eventually like like Geesnet or whatever basically said, yeah, we're not offering refunds to like the Kickstarter backers who specified a PC release. Um, but because it's not like it's not like other Kickstarters where they send you just the executable or like an install disk or whatever. It was just, oh no, this was just gonna be a link to the basically the Steam version. And then they had the co-marketing deal with Epic and pissed off a lot of people because Epic was still new at the time to the point that to control like the fuck like have even some positive press, Epic basically says, Okay, fine, we'll issue refunds to people who want it. Yeah. Which, for the record, I personally don't like using the Epic Games client myself. Mm-hmm. The whole tantrum people throw about it is fucking ridiculous. It, it is. But also, but. I can sort of understand this idea of them not being very clear with their messaging, you know? Sure. Just being sure. like, you know, the expectation at the time was like Steam was big or whatever. It's like, there was a Steam page that came up. For this game, by the way, pre-production, mm. and then they announced the okay, Epic Okay, that's deal. fair. I didn't know that. That point where people could like either wish list or like something, right? But it was mm. like, oh, it's the, the Steam like page is up. That must mean we'll be able to get it that way. But no, it was Epic, and then eventually I think a Steam version came yeah. out. But like, yeah, yeah, limited exclusivity. But still, the vibes on the release of this game were just. It's trying to get a little bit more rancid. Yeah, it went through delays, and uh, by the time it came out in November 2019, um, people were not incredibly kind. Like, you still had people looking at it and saying, damn, this really is Shenmue 3, and heaping some praise on it, just being like, yeah, it's kind of anachronistic, but it's also interesting that a game like this can exist. Well, a lot of people were not so thrilled about how it turned out. But it feels to me like largely the, the 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 critical response I've seen, and I'm sure there are exceptions, and I know we're about to be one of the exceptions, is people either saying, I didn't like Shenmue slash didn't play Shenmue and this is more of that, or I like Shenmue and this is more of that. And I'm here to say, I like Shenmue, this is not more of that. Yep. Anyone <laughs> who looks at this game, anyone who has loved and enjoyed Shenmue 1 and 2 you are frankly deluding yourself into thinking that like Shenmue 3 is a proper follow-up. I don't know if I would say people are deluding themselves. That seems like a bit... Because like, it's... The thing is... This game... Again, I'm being just a little hyperbolic or whatever, but like... I don't think the people who made Shenmue 3 
understand the appeal of Shenmue 1 and 2. I I was with you until I left uh, Bailu Village. Once you get to Niao Wu, I think it starts to find it again. Marginally, yes. But, but Bailu Village, which is the first half of the game, is terrible. Mm-hmm. It is a straight-up bad game. Yep. And it's marginally better when you get to, like, Niawu or whatever. Not Niawu. I, I, would, I would say decently better, but I hear you. I, I'm just saying, like... Okay. It doesn't get... It certainly doesn't get there because of Niawu. No. It, it, it does give you a significant amount of stuff to do as opposed to what you could do in Bailu. Especially if you have the DLC packs, because uh, they add in... I forget the name they of that a cop. casino. Hmm? I think they added, like, what, a casino? No, they, they had a casino, but they also, like, added uh, whoever that detective is that you work with. Um, you work uh, with you, they add, they add uh, Zhang Shuqin, who is one of the allies of uh, Zhu. Yeah. With the uh, Chawan Cha signs and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you is, end uh, up... Uh... Oh, go ahead. It's just a bit of, of Shenmue 2 I didn't mention because it was it didn't need to be in the summary, but there's a bit where you are doing some, like, cool, like, undercover kung fu signaling people by moving cups around on tables. It's kind of sick. But yeah. then Shenmue 3 is like, hey, remember that thing from Shenmue 2 you liked? Here it is again. It's yeah. true. I, I do like that it's there just because it gives you a little bit more to do within the setting, but uh, it's one of those situations where... This game is gated to a degree that the others weren't. Like, you were still working within somewhat small areas within these first two games, at least compared to something like Grand Theft Auto. But uh, it's to a point where you're walking around Bailu Village at the beginning, and uh, Ryo will just... If you try and put it, push him down a path, he'll just walk the other direction and be like, yeah, I'm not going to go there right now. Yep. It it becomes so... Cl- For a while, I was just like, is this like to help me like narrow the search area so I don't get lost or something? But eventually it became like clear, like, I mean, you know, this is an accusation. I can't prove this. Sure. But it's like, oh, this has to be because you just have the triggers set up and you didn't want to create a new world state. If I were able to walk past this barrier, I would walk forward and just a new scene would trigger because if I step on this spot, X cutscene plays. That would make a lot of sense because here's the thing. I got that moment of Ryo turning around and being like, I should look elsewhere when I was going down a path that had a cart in the middle of the path. That was already blocked up. I was walking to it. I thought I could investigate it. But then Ryo just turned around and said, no, you got to stick over here. And that is when the problems of the game really start to rear its ugly fucking head. To to me, the moment that I knew that things were kind of amiss, like when you first start traveling down to to Bailu Village for the first time in this game, you're doing the classic thing you did at the end of Shenmue 2 where you're walking with Shenhua, except instead of being prompted to, like, have a conversation with her or having somewhat of a control of the situation, it just fades to black and goes into a scripted cutscene where they're just walking, and uh, immediately it was like, this feels different. I, when that happened to me, I thought my game was broken, I thought, wait a minute, hold on. This isn't, like, I'm not having any choices. I I remember, like, I I started playing the game. I asked Jen, 
Is this because I'm on easy mode or something that just, like, skips through this? And I just confirmed with her that was like, nope, that's just how the opening works. Yeah, I can't. I, 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 my memory is not, like, absolute, and I didn't have every single interaction in the game. But I'm pretty sure that besides, like, picking something, like, you can pick a topic to start with with some people. But beyond that, there are no dialogue choices. You get some later when you encounter that the first of many thugs that you deal with in this game first of two but listen if i had a nickel for every time a thug captured an important character and held him hostage and i had to learn like a thing in order to get through it i'd have two nickels you still i would have two nickels but it's weird that it happened twice but you'd still have more nickels if you'd chosen the number of times you need to go find a hidden martial arts master to teach you a special move (laughs) there's it, it does give you a little bit more of that classic Shenmue 2 interaction between Ryo and Shenhua. If, like, you end up... <laughs> if you end up talking to Shenhua in her house, like, after you go over the events of the day, like, she'll just talk about a, co- a topic and prompt you to, like, offer your own thoughts, and you get to fo- mm. choose what you want to focus on. Yeah, but most of the time, whenever I walked up to Shenhua, she was just chopping the vegetables again... I would walk yeah. up to her and she would say, hi, Rio. And he would say, hello, Shenhua. And she would go, did you get enough rest? I was like, yes, I did. And the scene ends. See, and you get that's that. That's because you and I made the mistake of having interactions in the morning. Apparent, what Jen is saying, apparently at night, there are conversations that will happen. But Kiria and I both tried stuff in the morning where she has nothing to say and just were like, oh, okay. So I can't have conversations <laughs> of any real meaning it's like, and gave up. That just basically everybody in town I, I, okay there was a guy at like the verdant bridge right voiced by johnny young bosch i remembered that because he is like well the few characters of the many characters voiced by johnny young bosch was like man i like johnny young bosch i recognize that voice all right they got some voice actors right and i was like okay i want to talk to this guy i want to see what his deal is and you'd think in a smaller village with less people the developers would think of like having characters react to moments in the story or things going around town and tell you different things. But no, every time I talked to Johnny Young Bosch, he would say, man, I want to beat up those thugs. And then that would be it. Since we're on the Multiple top- times over multiple days, he would say the exact same thing. Since we're on the topic of voice actors, um, I just wanted to point out that unlike the first two games, like, they got a real cast for this game. Like... They got people who are basically dub anime voice actor luminaries like Wendy Lee, Cam Clark, Bryce Pappenbrook, Corey Marshall. Just a bunch of... Well, no. Well, Corey Marshall's the original Rio. Yeah, yeah they got say, him back. Yeah, Corey Marshall, yeah. who has not done much voice work in the meantime, and it shows. Um, He's mostly been in horror movies since then. Um, right. But yeah, like, if you just look down... the an axe? <laughs> and an axe goes through his head or something. But yeah, if you just look down the list, there's Jeremy Lee, Casey Mangiello. They, they got people who know what they're doing, but I think part of the discussion they had when they were making this game was that, okay, here's these amazing voice actors who know what they're doing. They have been doing this for decades or years. Um, the very we're going to experienced. Yes, they're experienced. I think that part of the voice acting direction for the English dub in this case was, okay, you got to make it sound like the first two games. So you've got people who know what they're doing, giving some of the most wooden delivery 
I've heard in the past decade. And if it's, and if the delivery isn't necessarily wooden, well, it's the same voice line basically every time with zero changes at all. Which, okay, I understand the appeal of trying to recapture the awkwardness of, like, how, like, Shinmu 2 and 1 sounded in English, but you should probably localize that to Ryo himself. Like, the developmental reality of Shenmue 1 and 2, even though they just went with, like, a bunch of actors who were living in Japan who could, or just people in Japan who spoke English to, like, do the dialogue, voice acting has changed in the intermediate years. People actually know how to give performances and take direction, and it would be much more interesting even narratively that if Rio is still the same still giving like kind of like the wooden weird dialogue but he's now surrounded with people way more competent or whatever and honestly i think a decent vocal director could probably wrench like a decent performance from like Rio's actor like like the say we are going to make it intentionally bad is like you should probably more focus on like what people found charming you know mm-hmm. uh i will note just a just a big dub for the japanese voice because it's just the same voices again and they're still pretty good at their jobs yep <laughs> yep like they, they still sound good there but it's like i i feel like and this is going to be kind of a constant refrain of this game is that like giznet or yu suzuki probably should have paid attention to the change that like happened in the past 20 years that people now are kind of expecting like actors to like act and have like decent performances and even if you're going for like the stilted weird dialogue you should probably localize it and figure out well why did people find that charming right Mm -hmm. and as it stands in Shenmue 3 it's not charming or interesting when I talk to Johnny Young Bosch and he just says the same lines over and over again or I... And, like, he's not an important character, right? And there's there's not, like, except for <laughs> except for a part we will talk about where someone is being held hostage by thugs and literally no one in town gives a single fuck. I hate uh, <laughs> it is Other than that, it is understandable that he doesn't have much to say to you about what you're up to. But given this game's obsessive focus over training your kung fu the fact that there is a character in the dead middle of town training all the kids in kung fu and every time you talk to him he will offer to train you to in kung fu and there's never any opportunity to actually engage with that is baffling absolutely absolutely obscene every time i would walk into town it would be like here's the guy teaching the kids or the weird man who's on the poles just like doing his kung fu stuff it's like I just want to have a conversation with these people. You can, like, you can train with that guy. Um, You just, it's just the sparring situation. Okay, no. Really? I couldn't get him to. Well, okay. But that still doesn't, like, change the point where I would like this character to actually be a character. Because, like, besides two conversations that I have with him, like, you're kind of forced to have with him. I felt no need to, like, actually talk with him. Because, like, at that point, the game had sort of trained me that, like, oh, I'm just going to get the same voice lines. And it's fucking, like, he doesn't, and going through Bailu Village, he has almost no impact on the narrative. And also, 
I like there's like a point there are several points but at one point where the game is specifically the story is specifically like Rio you need to find someone who teaches martial arts to find an edge and I go to this guy and he says Rio do you want me to treat teach you in martial arts and Rio's like eh, that's okay bye it's like what the fuck are we doing it didn't bother me so much in this first half like when it became a real problem for me was in the second half when they're introducing the Motley crew that you'll be interacting with, especially in the finale. And aside from their individual scenes, you don't get much time with it. Like you get the bit where like you walk up to the shrine maiden and she thinks that you were the one who ransacked the temple and she gives you a little speech about, oh yeah, by the way, check out the Kickstarter backers over here. Which the interaction (laughs) in this game with the various moments of Kickstarter are some of the funniest goddamn things I've ever seen in a game, and they do not intend to. But yeah, like, after you speak with her about all that stuff, you don't see her again until, like, the very end when she's teaming up with you. Yeah, you have this one this one scene of her trying to hit you with a broom, and then her being like, oh my gosh, sorry, I thought I thought you were one of the thugs. And then at the end, it's like, and all your friends are here. I'm like, yeah, I wish she was my friend. I wish we'd gotten to hang out literally at all. But like, reeling it back a little bit to Bailu Village. Like, okay, Jayon Bosch character, whatever. He doesn't have much to say. However, this game has a really, really focused, like, not focused. it, It wants you to interact with Shenhua fairly often. You speak with her in the morning. She waves at you, like, goodbye, and w- when you are done with the day, you come back, you have a conversation with her. Conceptually speaking, I actually really like this aspect of, like, having someone in the game that Rio can just talk to about what's going on, and you can have, like, character moments. That's actually great. Like, I love that. I... I I don't even object to the idea of you kind of go through like the sort of ritual of like saying goodbye to her in the morning, right? Because, you know, that's just like how life kind of works. You you live with someone or like you're at your family's house or anywhere, you say goodbye to them because that's the polite and nice thing to do. Shenmue 3's version of this is an unskippable cutscene that you watch every single time. And it's not like... It'd be one thing if this game is trying to impart to you that Ryo is finding this boring and banal or whatever. But or that he's finding this as like a new home and this is a comforting ritual. Yes, but you don't get that. Like you just get the same scene every time. At least when you return to the dorms in like Persona 3, at least a different character would say hello to you for like a line. And that was like way more impactful because I felt like, oh, there's different people to talk to. But, like, plenty of games like, have done this idea of, like, someone you just talk to every now and again to kind of, like, ground ground yourself. And it's, like, this game feels like it wants to do that, but doesn't know how to go about it. Yeah. And I feel like my big biggest beef with this game is the way it's padded by weird failure. Mm -hmm. Um, because most of the game is taken up by instances where there is a strong guy and you fight him and he beats you and then you go train and you come back and you fight him and he beats you and you go train and you come back and you fight him and he beats you. And it's like, I don't, I'm doing this more than once. I don't understand the point 
And it's not like... It'd be one thing if when you fight the first thug, it's that he's using some sort of, like, forbidden kung fu, where it's like, oh, this is, like, a technique or, like, idea that Ryo has literally never encountered before, and he has to, like, again, back to that theme in Shenmue 1 of, like, there's always a stronger guy. But no, this guy just basically sucker punches Ryo, and then he's, the narrative goes, oh, he was out for two days. Or, yeah, and it's, they do that with uh, with the boss of the Red Snakes, and it is kind of cool because it's like, oh, he's got this very weird fighting style, and you have to go find people who sell – like, basically, you have to go find kung fu nerds who sell kung fu books yeah. and be like, yeah, he does this thing with his arms back, and like, oh, that sounds like a monkey, and you're like, if you say so. <laughs> it would be – like, God, that – particular quest could have been really interesting and really played to the idea of Rio like bashing his head against the wall or whatever imagine if you had to fight this guy multiple times but not in the sense of you could possibly beat him but more like okay I need to learn more about his technique so I can talk to like the people in town and learn the secrets behind his technique but no when Rio is going on this quest to figure out the stupid like ridiculous kung fu this guy is employing the game is like well shit we haven't actually properly like done anything to tell the player what they're looking at so we're gonna do a flashback sequence that of just the guy posing and then you do a shitty guessing game yeah he like the the guy like does like a like <laughs> like a weightlifter like both hands held tight at the crotch to make his biceps bulge and you press the correct button and Rio says he looked like a dragon <laughs> I'm like sure he did right also <laughs> sure he did, also but. the last choice I know it's a trick question and you go with bear and because it makes more sense the fact they put up bear and panda i would have lost my goddamn mind if i had like chosen bear and the kung fu master specified panda they're both fucking bears but like they don't do that but i was just so ready that the game would pull that kind of nonsense on me because of all the nonsense that the game had pulled prior at this point because a lot of choices in this game feel like it's not even like it they want you to not think that this is a short game, right? It's like, Obviously, there are so many choices just to be like, make this take longer so people are getting their money's worth. Speaking of taking longer, uh -huh. um, both Bai Lu and uh, uh, the, the second city. Niao? Yeah. yeah. Both Bai Lu and Niawu have um, points where, okay, so in order for the specific Kung Fu master to take you seriously and teach you their technique... Um, you're going to have to raise some money and <laughs> God, the... I nearly screamed <laughs> when I got the price point for the book. Jen can attest to this. Yeah. Like the various points were like, so in by Lou, there's the bit where, okay, you have to figure out where this aged alcohol is, even where, like, even where, even if it exists, and you eventually figure out, okay, it's in this general mart, and the camera just pans down to the price, and it's, like, 2000 And that is kind of, that kind of takes some grinding to get to, but then in Yawu, you find out the price of the book, and it's, like, 5000 So, at, at a certain point, either you're doing... You could do a few methods to basically just cheese this game for money and 
one of them is just collecting a bunch of Three Kingdoms books from the bookseller <laughs> and uh, selling them to a different used bookseller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that ends up doing it, but also like uh-huh. the most reliable way of doing it is just playing Flower Bird, Wind and Moon over and over again and save scumming it until you get exactly what you need. And I w- well, that- most of the time, people might say, "Oh, the cheating is not intentional," or whatever. It's like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're cheating. You're robbing yourself of the experience, whatever. The game tells you to cheat by use of fortune tellers that will tell you the result of that gambling game. Six, you bought a hundred books? <laughs> no, Jen, count, please. I bought 400 books. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I, Jen is incorrect. Mathematically, once you're in Yaowu, it is more profitable Per, per minute of, of time spent to do the book exchange where you are buying four different Three Kingdoms books and then exchanging them for a move scroll and then selling the move scroll. The thing is, it's every... There is no, like, bulk sale or bulk trade. There's none of that. You're just mashing buttons or doing rapid, like, up and down sequences on the D-pad, burning your wrist out as you raise money. I did get up to having $20,000, though, so that's pretty good. <laughs> right. But, but here's the thing. The idea of, like, buying a super expensive thing in, like, Bailu, we, we didn't, like, necessarily touch on this. I have a big problem with the idea of, like, Bailu Village being this super isolated mountain village that takes, like, two or three days just to talk to the guy at the port, why in the hell would this community be using paper money? Why isn't it just trading, like, stuff? Like, I get it. There could be an idea of, like, oh, maybe there's another town or something that they got to facilitate trade or whatever. But this is, like, again, in my estimation, this is a severely isolated mountain town. And finding out that, like, one of the little kids that, like, the guy is training in, like, the pavilion or whatever and is like, oh, yeah, I need to raise a bunch of money for my grandpa's medicine. Like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, this could be, like, a really dark, like, fucking commentary on capitalism or whatever. But no, this is Yu Suzuki saying, well, money was a mechanic in the previous games. Money obviously needs to be the mechanic in this isolated mountain village. It, it it that doesn't bother me as much as it does for you, but also like it is very funny that this uh, small town has two different gambling dens operated by different staff. Well, that nobody goes to. <laughs> You're the only one that goes to these places. <laughs> and one of them, like the second one you get to, is just like it's just two people, and one of them just runs all of the games. <laughs> it's very funny. It's. Funny, cosmically speaking, but it just immediately shatters the illusion of, like, Bailu Village being, like, a village that people live in. It makes it abundantly clear that, like, oh, this is just a set of, like, stupid mechanics for me to interact with to advance the game. Those previous two Shenmue games made me feel like, oh, Yokosuka is, like, a real place with living people and, like... Again, even the comically designed, like, Kowloon, at the very least, could maintain the illusion of people living here. Bailu, and... Bailu is just Sorry. like... Bailu is just, oh, here's the gambling mechanic. Here's the, like, shop. 
here's the people that get you wherever you need to go. Whatever. Go ahead. And also, this is a series that is built around money grinds, right? Like, that are good. Like, Shenmue 1 has a very key point where it's like you get scammed out of your entire life savings and you have to go work as a dock worker for a week. And it's great. Shenmue 2 has you standing on the corner of some, like, you know, residential area in the middle of nowhere in Hong Kong begging people to play Lucky Hit and they ignore you. It's fantastic. And the key difference there in Shenmue 1 and 2, the amount of money you really needed to raise wasn't that much like sure at a certain point in Shenmue 2 you gotta raise 500 Hong Kong dollars but in theory if you've been playing the game like like smart or whatever you at least have like kind of a leg up on this or at the very least there are ways to make the money I only remember mm-hmm. in 2 maybe doing the you know flower wind sun moon whatever cheat like kind of just once just so that we could kind of get through it but at the very least like the amount of money you're raising in Shenmue 1 and 2 are at the very least, like, obtainable and, like, realistic, and you can kind of set your goal on it, right? Like, okay, I need to make some money for this ticket to Hong Kong. That sounds like something that you would work for a week for, but at the very least, when you're doing all that forklift stuff, you know, there's changes, like, you have a different route each day, and it's about, like, kind of the mon- like the monotonousness of work itself, but, like, at least you get to hang out with, like, these people at the end of the day and do a dumb race on the forklift. And it's like, oh, that's a fun activity to look forward to. That's, like, how if you've ever worked a shitty dead-end job, you probably have, like, certain interactions with your coworkers about kind of how shitty and dead-end it is, but you still, like, kind of enjoy their company. Yeah, it becomes it becomes not actually about the money very quickly because you're also doing investigation of the local gangs and you're trying to look out for your best friend Mark. Mark? Hi, Mark. You're great. Um, like, there's there's more going on than just how many, not just how do we make the number go up, but also how many steps can we add to making the number go up? You have to just buy tokens and then gamble tokens and exchange the tokens for prizes, then sell the prizes at the thrift store. Right, right. Stores are like a kind of a point that just really like make me molding about this game. Everything's a store. Every single person that you interact with in Bailu and basically everyone in Niwao is just, here's somebody trying to sell you something. And the game's not, like, about that. Again, it's not trying to say something about, like, capitalism or whatever. It's just sort of, like, like, why in the world, like, would I want to have an interaction with, like, some of these characters when 99% of the time... The interaction goes, hey, you want to buy something? Ryo says no. He asks this question. And most people in this game are generally nice, so they point you to your objective. And that's how it just goes. It, it, it's, it's, it's just so, like, annoying. And the idea is I never get the sense that these people have, like, lives outside of, like, them just selling you something. It'd be one thing if the noodle vendor in the WoW is, like, who generally tries to push you to buy noodles. Like, I don't know, what if a vendor in Niwao said, hey, fuck you, buddy, buy something first, and then I'll give you your, like, you know, information, right? Right, right. I mean, 
one of my favorite interactions led to a later bit of big disappointment, sadly, which was when I was first walking around the, the like the harbor area of Niwao, the port. Mm-hmm. And it's just like before you go to the hotel, you don't have much to do. You just sort of talk to different vendors. And I walked up to the tea shop. And the tea vendor was like, you've got to try my tea. And Rio's like, um, I kind of don't. And she just pours a cup and hands it to him. And he drinks it. And he makes a weird face. And then she's like, it's good, isn't it? Here, it gets better on the second cup. And Rio's like, I really don't. And hands him another cup. And he drinks it. And, she, and she's like, oh, the third cup is where it really good gets good. And pours him a third cup. And he drinks it. And she's like, oh, how about a fourth? And he's like, I really should go. And then I got the like journal updated sound. And I opened the notebook. And it just says, that tea was really good. And I'm like, what a bit of actual personality from this fucking game. <laughs> and then later, I am waiting because you do the last bit of stuff and it's like okay now you have to wait Mm -hmm. for the day to end so you can go to the castle and i'm just hanging around i'm literally like setting down my controller and i was like you know what what if i were to go get some tea and i go to the tea shop and i can't do shit yep this game like like the way you interact with the people are just it's it's nothing it's like Every single person is either a glorified menu to buy some, like, food or select what you're going to do at the dojo or whatever. No one has, like, a personality beyond the immediate consequence of getting Ryo to his goal. Mm -hmm. Should we also talk about how they broke the health slash combat system here oh yeah the thing that makes the game even more terrible and a slog to go through so in this game you have a stamina meter which is not a bad idea like the idea that okay you have to feed yourself while going through through the day like that's not a terrible idea that's actually even a great idea there are like like okay so at one point in the wow You go to, like, a a pharmacy and you realize there are multiple types of medications you can buy. And I got the sensation that maybe at some point in development, they were considering a more complex system of Ryo getting sick, getting well, whatever, forcing you to, like, have a variety in your diet or, like, have medicines on hand to do with stuff. Really good RPGs, by the way, can really sell on this, like, idea or fantasy. Right. Yeah. The one thing I'll say to push back against that is that this game has so many shops and like they're all selling things that will have no gameplay purpose. Like you can buy prayer statues, you can buy mirrors, you can buy all sorts of shit from the Awu and you can buy like like a bunch of weapons that would maybe be useful in all the fighting you do. Uh Uh-huh. No. No. Okay. (laughs) Well, allow me to show... So, when you play this game, if you decide to play this game, get used to buying a lot of black garlic. Because here's the thing. When you go to the initial, like, fruit, like food stand in Bailu, you look at the foods. You find an apple. You find fruits. You find, a, like, all sorts of things. And they increase your health by, like, 25, 30, whatever, Right? And then you tab over to the black garlic, which is the most reasonably priced thing of nine like dollars, and it heals you for 300 health. Your base health in this game is like a thousand. There is no 
point at all to buy anything else in terms of food. It's not like, say, if Rio eats a bunch of garlic, characters remark, oh, you have, like, really stinky breath, Rio, and not interact with him. You don't get this sensation that Rio is going to get a stomachache from being a psychopath that just, like, eats nothing but, like, whole cloves of black garlic. That part always made me laugh. Like, I would just be walking around, and it's like, okay, time to beat up this person. I'm just going to stand over here and eat all this fucking garlic and then just gonna, yeah just gonna shotgun cloves of fermented garlic <laughs> yup and it's the most effective thing like it is. It sure is. there are like herbs and combinations but there's no like crafting system to be like oh i'm gonna craft myself some medicine to like deal with this problem no the the herbs just tie into like the the merchant shit right like there mm. is <clears throat> At least in Yakuza, even though you have moments of, like, you can probably buy the most ideal thing. But at the very least, like, Kiryu tends to remark through the vocal performance of, like, foods he likes. Or, the yeah. or, or like, in fucking, like, in goddamn, like, Middle Gear Solid 3, depending on what you basically feed this to, like, Naked Snake to be, like, what he wants or whatever... You can make him sick. You can make him throw up, or he'll just say, "Ah, nasty." But he can. And also- he will develop. He will develop taste for things. Yes, yes, he will. And also with the food, if you're gonna have me interact with Shenhua on a daily basis, fine. Why the fuck can't I cook her a meal? <laughs> why does or or why doesn't she ever finish chopping those tomatoes? She constantly is chopping those damn tomatoes. It's Mississippian single- tomato. <laughs> yep. I, I think part of the issue here. And this is why that part wasn't was more hilarious to me than a frustration is just that this game is not a forty seven million dollar game. This game is a maybe ten to sixteen million dollar game. This is a this is practically twenty million. Twenty million. But this is practically a not necessarily an indie game, but it is almost approaching those levels in terms of what they have access to. Then so you need to either look at the mechanics you want to do and polish those to a mirror shine at the exclusion of everything else. Because if you, I mean, or, or something, I'm just saying, if you have a limited budget and you're like, I can only afford to do one or two of these things, you need to make sure that the things you are doing are worthwhile okay like you know it's 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 a it's a very tricky position to be in to be talking about like here's how they spent their money and how they should have game development's complicated it's super hard but like you have i mean okay first of all 20 million dollars may not be like you know gta game money it's also not like a nickel right that's a decent chunk of money um and like the way they chose to spend that money I bet they're not incredibly nice models, but they did create models for every completely irrelevant item that you can buy from these shops. They did, like, animate a billion different moves when they don't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. Like, Shenmue 3 needed to either A, radically change its scope, or B, be a different thing. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily agree that it needed to be incredibly polished. Like, I feel like there's plenty of amazing games that I've played in the past few years that uh, just blew my mind, and they're not nearly as polished as some of the contemporaries. But uh, 
po- I would argue polish, a better word for it is focused. That's what I was going to go for because polish isn't the problem. It is perfectly okay to have like a mechanic or an idea that is a little rough around the edges, but at the very least you can like meet it halfway and like, I don't know, like, like I can't really come up with an example off the top of my head, but like, I don't know, it, it's... <laughs> It's one thing to have, like, you know, I'm kind of, like, using polish as, like, a very specific, like, idea of, like, taking the things that are good about your game and making sure that it works, right? It's, like, the fact is, the stamina system in this game is immediately and quickly broken to the point that it becomes a afterthought, and that is a failure of mechanics design. And it's a chore, right? There's nothing fun about it. There's nothing. It doesn't feel like it adds to the experience either, right? Because it doesn't like there are a lot of things in the Shenmue series that are not necessarily fun. There are times where Yo has to deal with things and it's not supposed to be an enjoyable thing for him. But this isn't like unpleasant either. It's just every once in a while I hit R1 then I hit X four times. Right. Who cares? Right. Working a daily job at the like fucking like with the um forklift at the very least i'm not saying it's the most like incredible variety gameplay whatever but it had a vision it was like well rio has to work a shitty dead-end job for a little while to make up the money that got stolen from him in shenmue 3 it's just oh this money drain is here to make sure that I to keep myself healthy when I do the billion fights that have no like consequence. I hate hate the fighting engine in this game so it's, much. It's pretty bad. Because here's the thing about Shenmue One and Two. It was originally going to be a virtual fighter like RPG, right? And so it kind of like in development got to this point of like. Basically, you're playing a super stripped down, toned down Virtual Fighter clone. Yeah, and like Yu Suzuki has history with Virtual Fighter himself. Like, he he's he has been a very talented mechanics designer, and just like you can feel how good it feels to fight in Shinbu One and Two based off that Virtual Fighter DNA. Mm-hmm. In three, and I understand the potential reason why you might take the approach of we need to make a system that's free form that anyone can kind of get through. I understand that. In, in fact, I can even appreciate that of a fighting system that is deceptively simple that lets you get through an encounter, but then challenges arise and you realize I need to learn more mechanics or whatever to become better, like a fucking martial arts story. In this game... The first and only pop-up that I can recall that you get about learning the controls, it just tells you to hit buttons. It just says, hit the face buttons. Hit the right trigger every now and again. Don't forget the block. And let me tell you, as someone who got deeper into it, I'm not going to call myself a master. I bet there are deeper levels to explore. Uh, I did not discover any guard break mechanic, despite nope. the fact that guards, the enemies guard nonstop. What I discovered is basically use two moves: use Burning Sandstorm or something, or no, Guanjin Count- fa- uh, Thigh, 
uh, Guanqing Thai for like weak enemies because you can one shot them once you've got your stats up and then burning sandstorm for everyone else. Wait for them to start punching sidestep hit R2 take your hands off the controller. Yep. I came to the exact same strategy, and I'll tell you one more thing. I didn't buy a single skill book the entire game, and I got through it. Like, yeah, I had issues, but the issues were more akin to, like, I have to do these arbitrary fights to advance the story to fight a dude dressed in red, a dude dressed in blue, a dude dressed in white. Wow, isn't that exciting? Like, why the hell is it... Not in, like, Bailu Village that everybody's, like, a martial arts, like, nut. And it's, like, you get to fight people in town and you get to, like, hang out with them, learn with them, like, sparring partners. Like, have a drink with one guy one day and then you do your promotion ceremony the next day where you have to spar with, like, your good buddy or whatever. Oh, but, but Kyrie, there is one person who you have this relationship. Oh, yeah? There is Wei Zhen, who is the uh, kung fu girl who is over in the sunflower uh, area, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's in the Chinese dress. Uh, if you hit square, which is the like productive, basically there's like a productive and unproductive button. Mm-hmm. <laughs> square is like be productive. X is like be unproductive or sometimes story stuff. Um, but if you hit square and you do like the training menu, she's like excited to fight you. And she's like, I learned so much. And she's like, oh, you're back. You want to spar some more? This is great. I sparred with her like, 30 times and then the first time i hit x for the other conversation button she was like wait who the fuck are you i was like girl we (laughs) hang out for several hours every day Uh uh-huh and also i completely blasted through that and ignored her the entire time the game game because there was no reason like there was like Yu Suzuki has said that the purpose of this game is to go around, get lost, get distracted, whatever. I would have loved to have, like, you know, get distracted with, like, a sparring partner, with the girl in the china dress or whatever, and just, like, hang out, learn from her or whatever. But I just knew at that point in the game that the game could not possibly pay this relationship off in any way, and it doesn't even try. It's a shame because, like... People do say that this game doesn't move the story forward. I would argue that it actually does in several significant ways. Um, Yeah, should we get into, like, actual story stuff? Yeah, because, like, when you come here, you start learning, oh, my father, wow, has been here before. And you even, like, run into people who have experiences with him. Like, this is where they used to punch... This is where he used to train on this very tree and left um, marks with his fists. And uh, you even kind of find out that um, he even... Like, the person who died, Sung Ming Zhao, um, he and Ryo used to... I mean, he and uh, Wow used to be very good friends and used to train in this village, even. Mm-hmm. And Lan Di is his son, as we've established, but Lan Di was taken away young by the Chiyo men and is now unknowingly, like, working against his father's dream, which was to protect these artifacts and that, you know, the, 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 the like, legacy of the Qing dynasty. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And you also, I mean, like they're there, but also you get stuff like, I mean, listen, I know that it seems like from one, two to three, the arc is like scaling down the importance of the mirrors effectively, despite <laughs> talking up, the, talking them up every time. Cause in one, it's like, listen, if these two mirrors get united, there's going to be a huge monster that will end the world. And you're like, wow, that's a really wild element to include in this pretty realistic game. And then in two, you talk to Yuanda Shu and he's like, don't be fucking ridiculous. There's not going to be any world ending beast what are you a child it's going to resurrect the ancient chinese dynasty and then and the like, end okay. of two is you get you find a special sword in a quarry of phantom river stone that floats in midair and shines a light and it's like oh you are like I am perfectly okay with a game being, like, kind of ambiguous with, like, is this real? Is this imagined? Whatever, right? Or things even being metaphorical, right? This game does not walk that line at all. At all. It (laughs) does not find a way to convey that maybe this moment in which Ryo and Shenhua, like, see the sword floating as, like, some sort of extended metaphor about, like, their destiny or whatever... But the game is so, inc- like three in specific, is so in- incredibly unclear as to the stakes. And then. And then. Shenmue 3, first of all, is like, well, whatever, that stuff in the cave. Yeah, that was weird. Anyway, moving on. Uh, we got to we got to find out what this, these these mirrors are connected to the creation of this bridge. And it's a commission from. Oh, we're going to steal the Declaration of Independence. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, that's all it is. It's a bridge that's not even that old. They're like, this isn't like a bridge of like a story passed down to like the old woman. It'd be one thing to talk to this old woman. And she remarks that her grandmother told her a story that was told to her by her grandmother. But no, it's 70 years ago. It, it's it's funny because like you have to talk to like three different elders about this and each time it cuts to a little flashback footage where it's like oh yeah i remember that day where like a whole envoy an imperial envoy travel across this bridge and it just shows the same shot three times but from different kids angles none of these flashbacks reveal anything else about the situation other than like the banners they're carrying conspicuously match um, the phoenix and dragon mirrors that Rio is yeah. intimately familiar with. God, and the the explanation is so fucking funny because the reveal is because you finally like you go into the bell tower and you do a puzzle and you get a scroll that explains everything which is that basically this imperial envoy came here to commission like keys to his like fucking indiana jones puzzle yeah and for he... the treasure of the king dynasty and he came in with banners portraying the solution to the puzzle and also just like he chose them because he thought it was cool it's... it is so and it's not even about like the banality of like rich assholes like doing this sort of thing it is treated in the narrative as like this ancient treasure and shit like that when it's a treasure that's not even 70 years old at this point, right? (laughs) The narrative cannot decide if these mirrors are somehow 
tokens attached to an ancient thousands of years old prophecy or just the fucking vanity project of a emperor that wasn't even that has not even been dead for that long here's the comparison right it's 2022 this is 1980 something i forget exactly right mm-hmm. this is like if you found out that there were these like magical like like fucking like sculptures that were commissioned that you go up and climb this mountain and you lay into the relief and it reveals an original copy of Chuck Berry is on top like what are we fucking doing it is bananas how inconsistent it is and it's like okay sure whatever the treasure might be dumb it's about the journey or whatever this brings up an interesting point so the final the journey is is absolutely miserable because here's the thing Absolute total whiff missed opportunity comes at the end of the Bailu section, where upon realizing you're kind of putting all the pieces together, and like the the old woman kind of tells you, ah, you must find these six keys. Now, in another game that might be better than this, you might think, ah, shit, dude, I gotta think about like the connection of like the world of this area as like a real place and i have to like go outside and connect the dots and look in places i didn't think to look right no they are in her house (laughs) yeah she just just didn't clean up she was like hey here are the six ancient keys to like open this thing to get this treasure oh by the way chai is here and you kick his ass in a cutscene. <laughs> oh, but but wait, I gotta I gotta understand the meaning of these keys. Oh. They match with different symbols. Oh, let the... me see: fist and hand, moon and sun. You fucking idiot! You fucking assholes! <laughs> like, come on! This isn't even related to like. I don't have to like look at a poem or whatever and like start interpreting it as like a metaphor or whatever. And I have to actually think about it. No, I just put the keys up and I was like, oh, I guess the opposite of this thing is this thing. And here we go. We unlock the ancient scroll that's only about seventy years old. I'd like to reiterate to tell you how to get to the national treasure okay. you know but listen curie remember they're in a place that doesn't have a lot of history china yeah totally <laughs> yeah fucking china that place that doesn't have any history really it's... nothing happened before the 1900s if yeah you think about it Wait, china. although hilariously enough like like the whole history thing at one point you get the trainer who's like in the pavilion saying like oh a bit like lubu itself and then like rio makes this snide remark of like wasn't lubu a bully or whatever rio has an opinion for the first time in decades (laughs) (laughs) and it's so fucking funny and it's not like you don't have to like talk to historians or whatever it's just i don't know idiot it was the opposite of son the moon good job you figured it out <laughs> or when you're looking at the pictures in Nyawu, you go to the like the um travel state or whatever the fuck and they have a bulletin board of like photos from around town and there are a bunch of statues of guan yu and Ryo's like why the fuck do these people care so much about guan yu <laughs> <laughs> 
like, holy <laughs> shit! Like, it's just, it is just a goddamn mess. We should also get into, like, the single moment that Shenhua deviates from her character. Um, oh, oh she, when she crushes a man's balls. Yeah. <laughs> and then the narrative remarks on this for five minutes and then moves on and, like, nothing happened because Ryo constantly, like, pushes away Shenhua like, I was like, oh no, she's not capable. I don't want to put her in danger. She caused this thug to be crying and weeping and begging for fucking mercy. What's up with that? And while you're interrogating him, she's just constantly delivering marks like, oh, you want me to come back here? You want me to put my foot right there again? I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> and he breaks instantly. It's also self-meta humor time. Meta, meta, meta humor time. Was when we were we were fucking hanging out, living our lives, and Jen messages the group like, "Whoa, they really let Shenhua do some stuff in this game." <laughs> like sucker punched, tricked, deceived, <laughs> used trick. Uh, like like okay so Shenhua is like fuck she's given nothing to do with this story it, 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 it's just so like baffling like I don't know what if we could play a Shenhua for a while or something I don't know give her some like character development she has nothing she has nothing she talks to Rio and says hey did you know that you can like cheat at like fucking flower wind moon bullshit and then I would say to Shenhua yeah I know because a guy I encountered earlier I caught ducks with told me hey did you know that you can cheat at this game to progress the game so that you can take shitty 1 out of 25 like or like 1 out of 4 chance to possibly incrementally allow you to advance the story in this narrative focused action RPG <sighs> this game has zero no narrative momentum and when it starts getting there it slams the fucking brakes like you mentioned it by Lou that like you talk to this old master you start learning history about your father some interesting shit starts happening and then the game basically throws on the emergency brake and tells you to raise $2,000 idiot to like keep the story going while a man is actively captured and in the game I could dick around for weeks and like enough. Yeah and even after like it's important to realize like this happens fairly early on within this arc um the band is in danger. You go to other people and they're like asking them, hey, can you teach me? And they're like, no, it, it's good that you want to help this person, but you're too inexperienced. And Rio never has an moment was like, well, you fucking go then. <laughs> but Talk to Johnny Young Bosch and the guy with the spears and make them say, oh, I'm too scared to like encounter this guy. Give me Maybe something. Maybe they just didn't like that guy very much. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're all just like super passively aggressively hoping he dies. And then after that, once you get the drunken master to help you out after getting him his alcohol and his steamed buns and all of that he's like okay no we're gonna take multiple days you're going to learn how to chase these chickens you're going to rooster step with me you're gonna do all that and then i will teach you the move right and this isn't like li shao tao from the previous game where it's like you have like some sense that this woman has like a character or mo like this drunken master guy is basically nothing he is just a big 
wooden or the big not big wooden it's he's a roadblock that's all he is it's like do this meaningless bullshit i don't learn about him much as a person he's just oh he's just a drunken master right like maybe there is stuff to it but at this point in the game i was so incredibly just like checked out that i was like all right i guess i'll catch the fucking chickens again i guess i'll do the thing like there's like a mini game in this game. You do horse stance and you increase your endurance or whatever, right? And you do that mini game again with him and he's holding the stick and that's how you have to like hold it. And at first I thought, oh, is the game going to do something actually kind of interesting with this mini game where like normally I just have to hold still and mash the button at a certain rhythm to do horse stance. It like maybe make the guy move the stick up and down to give me some reason to engage or have any interest in this mini game whatsoever. Like no, you do it once, then you do your rooster steps. Also, he just sits there going soldier, soldier. Yeah, <laughs> over and over. he just tells you, "Oh, you're doing a good job," or whatever, and then he teaches you <laughs> the move so you can clear the cutscene to fight the guy who you can beat. By the way, that like, yeah, I don't have a I'm- problem with unbeatable bosses i really don't some of one of my favorite moments in chrono trigger is like this is an unbeatable boss moment right i actually i think when used at particular points in the narrative an unbeatable boss can do a really astoundingly effective job at making the player feel utterly hopeless and powerless and then eventually they learn and grow and change and become better right Mm mm-hmm this game doesn't do that. Granted, I was playing on easy mode, right? Because at that point, it's like, well, the combat sucks and I don't want to, like, engage with it. So I'm just going to try and get through it as best as I can. And then I, like, like, oh, I could fight, like, this guy and do a good job or whatever. But then even if you, like, beat him, like, nothing changes. It just goes to a cutscene where Ryo gets his butt kicked and then moves on. And it's the same consequence whether or not you actually fight the dude or if you just stand there and let him punch you. But, like, also, I mean, like, so the, the way you finally beat him is you learn the super secret move, which is this, like, shoulder check, like, back so- shoulder check, whatever, right? Right. Um, And then at the end of the game, it's like, okay, but now there's a new boss and he's even stronger. And you go on this quest and you ask people his fighting style and you learn the weakness of his fighting style and you raise money to get this, like, special like secret book of kung fu knowledge but it's missing a page and you take it to the master and the master trains you and tests you to see if you're worthy and then he teaches you the sprite flipped shoulder check it is the the (laughs) fantasy variation on the same move and the variation is that it's a mirrored stance it is the same move but he's using the other arm it is (laughs) listen i don't know If you've ever, like, I've done some martial arts training in my past, right? And I like it. I had a really great time, like, learning this stuff. Do you know what usually happens after you learn, like, a move from, like, your teacher or whatever? This is, like... practice it to get good at it. You practice to get good at it, sure. Which, by the way, the game doesn't actually require this. You can just, like, learn the move, go fight the dude, and then do the cutscene, and you never have to deal with it again. Mm -hmm. So... There's no point in training in it multiple times, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. I'm just saying, if your karate teacher or whatever teaches you how to throw a right punch, usually the next lesson is throw a left. Sure. Like, like, (laughs) like, 
it is frankly insulting that like um, I, 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 I like like I learned this move and it's like oh do it but stepping the other way and it would be one thing if it was like oh Rio was like in a rush and was like I didn't learn it the other way and get my butt kicked but even then that's like weak right and again it's just the same story beat from the first half of the game it's the two nickels thing it's just two nickels, but it's weird that it's happened twice. Your nickel obsession is getting out of control, Kiri. <laughs> yeah, it's it's frustrating that the exact same arc happens twice, especially when like it's interspersed with moments where you run into characters and they're like, "Hey, he, the red snakes have been around here, but while you're here, why don't you come take a look at these names that are on this board? Or yeah, the, the time when you're looking through the the photos to find that one guy um, in the tourist center, those are also all Kickstarter backers as well. And uh, by the end of the game, you also fight people who are very clearly people who got thrown in okay, <laughs> as Kickstarter so, benefits. Uh, Jed, don't look, don't look. Well, hey, wait, I've already told you. You've this already answer. told me. Yeah, I've already told you this answer. This is one for six. So this is for this is like a game for like the kids at home, right? So, looking at, I, I have the Kickstarter page because like Kickstarter, like you know, archives pages and. Stuff like that. Let me find it real quick. But basically, right now, in your head, I want you to ask yourself, how much do you think these people paid to put themselves in the game for, like, 20 seconds? I'm going to say $100,000. Let me see. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So your guess is 100000 right? Yes. Uh, audience at home, keep a number in your head. Uh, six, you would have lost if we're using prices right rules. Uh, it was $10,000. <laughs> That's it? <laughs> Which, according to the Kickstarter award, all five versions, by the way, there was like five backers available and the award was no longer available. That means five people did this. In the Kickstarter page, it says, be a Shenmue 3 NPC. Your face will be featured in a Chiyu Men member to do battle with Ryo. To maintain character setting, body style will be up to Mr. Suzuki and be named as a special sponsor in the credits. Includes Rio voice message by Corey Marshall reward. So you get to show up as a awkward looking NPC that means nothing. And I was just like, oh, this must have been the Kickstarter backer. Beat their ass in 20 seconds. And they also now have a voicemail from Corey Marshall. I mean, hope it's worth say- it. <laughs> You say 20 seconds, and, like, that's... Generous. Yeah, like, you're not wrong, except for the beating their ass part, because all you do is press square once. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then they're done. Yeah, and and also, Ren is with you during this fight. In the times in this big final encounter that Ren decides to participate, he also, like, you don't even get to see all these characters. They just show up. They have really awkward faces because it was probably just, like, you know, like, Isnet like, asked them to submit some fucking photographs, and they built a character that vaguely assembles a human, or resembles a human or whatever, and then you just kick their ass and then just move on. Hope it was worth it, assholes. <laughs> there's 
the back the backer rewards that really got to me were the ones that were like put a message in the guest book for like the hotel and Rio's room specifically because you just got a bunch of people writing oh I love staying here wish I could have paid in cryptocurrency to the moon and <laughs> it's like, like why the fuck is this here which is like okay that's generally what's going to happen and this was kind of like an era of kickstarters like Listen, that's the funniest part because like that was an era, but this game took so long to make that by the time it came out in 2019, it was like, wow, they're still doing this, huh? What I what I'm trying to say is I listen. People probably know this. I I kickstarted like Mighty Number no. 9, right? That was like there was an era of Kickstarter like video games. Your Mighty Number no. 9s you're like, you know, Shenmue 3's bloodstain to a certain extent, where it's like the it was kind of early days of the platform getting big, and developers didn't quite know what awards would incentivize people, right? Or at the very least, they have an idea that seems good in theory. Oh, I get to be a guy who fights Ryo as part of the Chiyu men? Oh, awesome, right? But then you run into the actual reality of that, where you can't really develop this character like at all. So it's just like ultimately meaningless. And if you have no context for it being like a Kickstarter game, you would just look at it and be like, these characters look a little weird and they say nothing. And then you like beat them up and move on. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if you want to talk about a character who they could have done things with and they, I, they do enough that you're like, oh, I, I guess you started to do something. It's the gotcha character they introduce at the end. <laughs> Discord? Discord? You gotta, you gotta deliver the punchline to the joke, Discord. You gotta upload an image. I know it's really hard for you. Discord? Much like, much like how this... <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> much like this game, now it's like you have delivered, you have promised something, six, and now it's going to be delayed. And <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna copy image address. That usually works better. <clears throat> Here it comes. <laughs> because at the end of the game, suddenly there's a lady with. I, listen, I know it'll sound weird for you to say this, but seriously, it's very jarring. Like the character before you see her, Ren is like, "Wow, she's got huge boobs." <laughs> And then you, you walk into the room, and it's this incredibly ornate room with this woman sitting in a red and gold dress with bright red, like, shining red hair. Like, the way hair doesn't normally do. In this And, like, game. a spotlight it's... on her, right. <laughs> lounging. It's just like, what the fuck is going <laughs> yeah, on? Because you find out that in the ending of this game, Landy might not be the ultimate villain. It's this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's like you 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 briefly run into her at the beginning of the Awu. Um, she was basically on the same boat as you when you got here, and she looks completely different because she has a different hairstyle, a normal hairstyle. And uh, occasionally, you just run into her, being like, "Oh, kind of interesting." The two of us here, and um, at a certain point when you go back to fight the Yawu boss a third time. It's completely empty except for her just being like, yeah, I, I think they took your friend or something. And then they zoom in on her lips and she just gives a, like, crooked smile. Yeah, yep. okay, listen, Jen. Mm-hmm. Be honest with us. Yeah. 
you were horny for this one. <laughs> <laughs> I was more surprised than horny, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you're too shocked to be horny. You know what? That's legit. <laughs> it is a good look. I'll say that. It's a very good look. But, like, okay. You mentioned that there is a lady that Rio runs into throughout the course of the Niawu section. And these interactions tend to be fairly banal. It's, she helps, like, she helps, like, a kid do something. They share, Mm -hmm. like, a conversation with each other. Whatever, right? So you think, like, I initially thought, well, this game is doing, like, horrible when it comes to, like, the relationship between, you know, uh, fucking Rio and Shenhua, right? But the very least, I see the framework of, okay, these two people are connected to each other, possibly romantically, right? And now twist to the story here comes the possible romantic rival or something here is another woman in rio's life that might interrupt his thrilling conversations that he has with shenhua right and then the game goes it does the suspicious like smirk right and now she is a fucking like red-haired flame like temptress screaming about like oh like like a fucking like goddamn super sentai villain about like yeah oh i now have the power to take down landy and she burns down the castle it is such a severe and sudden character escalation that feels completely unearned and like i get that you're gonna have rio be like like silent in response to this because he's often like that but you have ren in the room and you had ren meet her earlier and you don't at least have ren go lady what the fuck is your deal right or at the very least like like literally anything i don't need the game to be like setting it up obvious from the beginning but the very least somebody needs to have a relationship with this character beyond passing conversations that Rio doesn't remark upon and then this sudden massive escalation of the conflict like now the conflict between like Rio and Landy has changed substantially because now there's this woman who is trying who's also vying for the Phoenix mirrors right a Phoenix and Dragon mirror right and it's like the stakes have substantially been raised in the last five minutes with like no like building to it which by the way so here's another bugbear i have in this game um so when you go to this encounter with this woman you you like 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 somehow (laughs) ren finds a duplicate of the ancient phoenix mirror at a pawn shop somewhere off screen as ridiculous Mm -hmm. as that is okay sure yeah, and right. he's like, hey, it, they want the mirror, we'll just give them this fake, and, right. uh... N- never mind that you could have possibly had that fake established earlier in the narrative of, like, oh, there are multiple versions of that mirror in, like, Shenhua's house that you discovered throughout the course of the game, but that's not the point. That's not, that's not the point, okay? We're gonna just take this point and move on. <laughs> so, Rio posits, at one point, talking to Ren, hey, there may be an unforeseen consequence of giving this false mirror, right? 
And so he being the honorable whatever, he decides give her the real mirror, right? Well, and also he does say like, listen, they, these people have done their research. If she realizes this is a fake, we're fucked. We can't risk it. So what that to me signals that either a, like the fake mirror needs to come into play at in the scene. Either A, like Ren needs to offer the fake mirror and it's instantly found out and then the conflict escalates because she realizes it's a fake and injures Ren or Shenwa or something. Something needs to happen as a consequence. Here, Ryo gives up the real mirror with almost no resistance or struggle, and then they give him Shenhua back. And then later, Ren uses the fake mirror to, like, to distract Landy so they can get away. <laughs> right. Sort but of. Landy, sort of. Because sort of. he Land- throws it out the window, and Landy just sort of, like, doesn't chase after it, just sort of, get, like, like his, anal- his model stops animating as his eyes lock onto the window frame for a full ten minutes. <laughs> and then they just walk away. It's not like... Oh, Landy's obsession with the mirror leads him to jump out the window or jump into the flame to be like to try and recover this mirror and Ren and Rio use it as an opportunity to run away or fucking Rio has to make this choice. This like No, Landy just blue screens. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, like why is it like that would have been a huge character change for Rio if like say he gave up the mirror to save his friends, right? Finally listening to his father's advice where like this isn't worth it and his like friends are more valuable. But that's not what happens. Ren throws the fake mirror like a frisbee like you're trying to distract a five-year-old and then they just walk away. Yeah. And also I was so sure that there was going to be a twist. I gave them I gave them too much credit. I should have fucking known better. I should have known there was going to be a twist where Rio's like, well, at the, after everything, Rio's like, I yeah, damn, we had to give up the mirror. And Ren's like, this mirror? I had two fakes, bud. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great. That would have been an awesome moment for Ren as well because it would have been like, oh man, like, oh man, we're in dire straits. And then Ren reveals after being beat up or whatever, he's like, buddy, that wasn't the only fake. Or something like that, right? That would have been a great moment. Yeah. That would have been incredible. And then at that point, like, characters' relationships are very key to narrative games, right? They need to, like, either by staying the same, it needs to say something about the state of the characters or whatever, or they need to change in order for them to, like, grow, right? There's no growth for, like, almost any of these characters. Nothing really changes and it's not trying to say oh Rio is stalwart and doesn't change and that's like a good thing it's more like the writers didn't know what the fuck to do with any of these characters a while before this game came out um, Yu Suzuki was at some sort of interview and people asked hey how much is Shinbu 3 going to cover of this story and Yu Suzuki took his water bottle and made a little mark on it, um, either with his finger or with a pen, and basically said, this much. And it wasn't even close to halfway uh, on the bottle. Like, and after that interview, he did clarify that, like, when it got, when it got blowback, he clarified, no, no, it's going to cover a little bit more than that. Um, it's, well, it's, it's not going to be, also, but, but, 
it could easily be a translation thing of like this is how much we've cut like they were saying how far are we and him uh, him taking it as how much will this one game cover so you add it to how much one and two covered or, or something. yeah or something. My, my point was gonna be i playing this through to the end gave me more credence to the idea that okay he was being serious when he said it was only covering this much because but, it feels like they're nowhere near even starting to wrap it up right. i mean they could wrap it up in like a couple of hours they go to where they're using the mirrors there's a showdown between Niao Sun and Lan Di Ryo fights the winner which is going to be Lan Di and this time he prevails right and like, everyone goes home and his life is destroyed or whatever like here's the thing when people say things like oh nothing happens in Shenmue 1 and 2 like if you just look at like the events of Shenmue 1 and 2. Technically, not a lot changes. Ryo gets, like, some money. He loses some money. Gets it back. Gets a ticket. Goes to Hong Kong. That's, like, the entirety of 1, basically, right? 2 is fairly similar. Goes to Hong Kong. Encounters some people. Gets robbed. Whatever. Finds out some more. Moves on. Goes to Bailu. However, in 1 and 2, you at least got a fair amount of emotional growth and character progress being made. Because sometimes when people say nothing happens in the game, they are often ignoring, like, significant, like, character beats or growth or moments of, like, contemplation and reflection that lead to, like, a character changing or, like, gaining a new perspective or something. And that's mm -hmm. just as important in, like, any narrative, right? And if this game was just a moment of rest for Ryo to reflect and maybe decide like to be reaffirmed in his quest, right? That would be maybe nothing quote unquote happens, but Ryo makes like a big decision to keep going, right? Mm -hmm. In this game, I don't think Ryo makes any significant changes to his character. He's basically the same from the end of, like, this game to, like, from the beginning of Shenmue 3 to the end of this game, he has not progressed at all. And, again, you can tell stories of characters who don't progress, characters who are stuck or unable to change, or it's actually a good thing that they are fastidious and refusing to change. But then at that point, you need to make the world around the character change or advance or something. This is... Something basic storytelling structure this is like this is something where like Shenmue 3 should have been like like I don't know like a book or something like that or something because but like if sorry it, it, no finish your thoughts sorry. basically ultimately if Shenmue 3 isn't interested in advancing the story if it is not interested in changing the characters and if there's nothing intrinsically, like, motivating about, like, the gameplay because it's fun or whatever, or extrinsically motivating because it lets me get to, like, something into Shenmue 4 or whatever, what is the goddamn point? What is the point? Not in a way that's, like, some games are about not having a point. You can do that. There are games that do this effectively, but not this one. Mm-hmm. And, like, we're going to have to go into questions shortly here um, because yeah. 
this episode is going to be at least three hours long <laughs> at this rate. Um, but like, I do have some nice things to say about Shenmue three, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think, uh, Nyawu is a gorgeous city. I think especially like the temples you visit when you're not staring at Kickstarter messages are really fucking pretty. I think the moment I had where I was practicing the one inch punch as like, you know, like some, some Kung Fu music played and the moon rose over the horizon because I'd been at it for so long was really powerful yeah like you could build a game around that like the journey to become stronger in like like i think about again i've practiced martial arts and or just like anything any skill that you choose to pursue in your life there's something deeply emotionally satisfying of struggling with it for a long time and then you have a breakthrough and you realize that you have like some small amount of mastery and like Shenmue 3 never has that moment where it all clicks into Rio realizing they have mastery or progressed or changed. It doesn't have that at all. Yeah, it's the kind of game that I'm very happy exists in some way just because like it is a it, it it's its existence is kind of a sign that people really do care about this series even decades after the fact. Like, they care deeply about these characters. They want to see things move forward. They like spending time with Ryo and Shenhua and everyone else. Um, I just wish that the game had found a way to, like, take that passion and create something that felt more meaningful than what we have here. The fact, and I guess, yeah, it's like, the fact is, you can see Shenhua walking around town, and you talk to, you can see Ren, and you see these people, and ev- like most of the time, when you saw Shenhua walking around, I couldn't talk to her, and whenever I could, it was the most banal, pointless conversation that meant nothing. My my final thought before we get into questions is sort of a response to a common thing that was said. Right, mm-hmm. people said for better or for worse. Shenmue 3 is like it was made without, like, just, like, right after 2, right? Like, obviously, it looks graphically better, but otherwise, it is just like he made another game without, you know, any changes, just the same guy he was then, without taking any lessons from other games. And that's not true, because if that were the case, that w- this would be a much better game. Saying that this is just like, oh, they made another one, is deeply, deeply fucking insulting to Shenmue 1 and 2. It is a... That sort of statement that, like, oh, it's just like the old games, no, it's it's not. It it's not. Fundamentally, like I said before, does not understand what, like, Yu Suzuki figured out that a lot of people care about, like, Shenmue, and he does not know why. He does end Shenmue 3 in the credits by saying... For as long as there are those who wish to see Shenmue live on, I will never give up on my own personal journey to the completed story. As with Shenmue 3, the Shenmue story is with you. And I sincerely hope that together we can continue to spin the tale of Ryo and his adventures in Shenmue 4. That was at launch. Um, A few months ago, uh, they got back with um, Yu Suzuki when he was, like, celebrating an anniversary, like, talking about the Shenmue anime and stuff like that, and... He kind of mentioned he doesn't have any plans for Shenmue 4 right now, but uh, he wants to make it more newcomer-friendly whenever one comes out. 
then let someone else make the game. Be a story supervisor. <laughs> let the Rio Gagotaku team make this game. Let yeah. someone else who actually has passion and resources and interest in moving the story and characters and world forward. Otherwise, like, don't say, oh, this is your story or whatever. No, this isn't what I wanted in the least. And Jen, I heard the breath you were taking in there to, to talk about, I, I assume, to talk about the Ryugar Kotoku slash Yakuza comparison. We have an email about this. Okay, okay, let's go into emails. Like, <laughs> all right. All right, let's take yeah. a breath. <clears throat> all right, let's start with a light one, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this question comes in from Inez. Hi, Inez. Hi. 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 I have an important, uh, sorry, excuse me. I have a burningly important question to ask the show. Please give us your power ranking of the mini games in Shenmue 3. Example given, Lucky Hit, Flower, Bird, Wind, and Moon. Uh, the arcade games like Nice Golf and Highway Star and so on. What are the best games and which are the worst? Do any of them compare to standing on the corner in Shenmue 2 and yelling at strange men until they crack and play a game of Lucky Hit with you? Is it as fun in Shenmue 3 to then run off and blow all your winnings on Gachapon capsules with the weirdest prizes ever? All the best, Inez. First off, thank you, Inez, for that thank question. You. So let's real quick pull up like a Wikipedia page of all the mini games in like Shenmue 1, 2, and 3. It's not a long list, but and for like power rankings, do we want to go like, do we want to order them or do we want to like just uh, their like DBZ power level? I can start with the easy thing. Right. Which is to say that nothing in this game compares even slightly to desperately trying to convince bored people to play like a hit with you. Which is so, like, fucking funny. Like, the, so context, the context of that is so funny. Of just, like, <laughs> yeah. Actually, let's focus on, like, the games in Shenmue 3. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's, so, that's the question. we got to rank these. Right, right, right. Um, okay. So, um, let's see. So, we have... Lucky Hit's a classic. Like, Lucky Hit, even if it sucks to play, it just being there <laughs> is like, okay, yeah. Yeah. You yeah, did Lucky what you Hit... had to do. Lucky Hit is, is solid. Lucky Hit continues to be funny, especially the one in, like, the casino in the Awu, where it's just the, the like, slightly pissed-off lady holding a beer is, like, the background, because they went with, like, the most ridiculous backgrounds for some of this stuff. And then, of course, also the faces of Kickstarter, like, backers as well. Um, I would say low on the list is Flower, Bird, Wind, and Moon, because... Really? I like that one. I like it conceptually as like a roulette game or whatever, but it's just sort of like got really tired of relying on it. Sure. Um, sure. Turtle race I, and frog race. Those are, those are solid. I, I like turtle race better than frog race. Um, but I like, I like these just like pick a horse and let him go, especially when like this one, there's basically a cheering mechanic. I think that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say, I don't know about y'all, as far as all the arcade games, I messed with them a little and got mega bored, so I will have Same. nothing to say about well, them. Same. Uh, the, thing, the main thing I have to say about the arcade games is, one, Nice Golf is just a re-skinned Pale Toss. The, so. moment, the moment Jen said, oh, like, Nice Golf is just Pale Toss again, I immediately, like, walked away from the machine. <laughs> um... Nice Golf has a funny name, but it's it's still bad. Mm. Um, Whack-A-Mole is like, that's just another QTE thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Highway Star was kind of fun and just sort of a... It was fun for like 10 seconds and then I the realized, cops. oh, wait a minute. Like, it wasn't like funny in the same way of like a really old arcade game is. 
where it's you know you know oh it's just the same activity over and over but whatever i guess like of the mini games um chobuchan fighter is funny very conceptually again that was like silly and fun because they realized they couldn't put virtual fighter cabinets in this game so at least there's like a attempt to have that um yeah it's a good it's a it's a reasonably fun to play goof yeah um yeah i'll mention that my favorite mini game was actually outside of the proper game itself like did any of you? It's called Halo. <laughs> <laughs> I booted up a good video game. Did any of you do the battle rally stuff? By the way, no. no. Okay, so <laughs> it's a separate option in the menu. The battle rally itself is kind of just whatever. It's just you running from point A to point B in various parts of Bailu, beating up people to like get a better time while you're running. Um, and with the combat system, that isn't fun, but sure. There's. A second mode called Chobuchan Hunt, where you're basically you're you're getting into various cordoned off areas of Bailu, and you have your your stamina meter converts into like a proximity meter, and you're basically looking around the village trying to find the little Chobuchans, and Rio just goes, "Oh, there you are, Chobuchan!" Every time you find one, and <laughs> <laughs> turns into a little diamond. <laughs> that, that, I messed around with that a little after I finished the game, and it was like, okay, this is this is kind of useless, but it's also kind of fun. I wish I could be positive on catch the goose slash catch the chicken. However, uh, a thing that for some reason we didn't go into, and I'll try and make this quick. Um, the QTE code in this game is dog shit, Absolutely. and you have a you have like a window of like two frames in order to input it. There were QTEs where I knew what the QTE was, and I was mashing the button before and after it came up, and it still didn't submit the input. Same yeah, just terrible. Ha- ha- same thing happened to me. Yeah, there's that like fight at the end with um, when you're in the room with Landy, and he's sending his mooks after you, and like. It's a three to four minute cutscene, and if you miss a single button press, you have to start the cutscene over. But it's two. It's two QTEs. It's square and then triangle. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so Cash the Goose is conceptually funny. I like the idea of, like, Ryo running around trying to catch these, like, geese and chickens as, like, some sort of, like, like, you know, the same way, like, you know, fucking Mr. Miyagi told Daniel to, like, fucking wax on, wax off, and it eventually leads to, like, martial arts mastery. Um, sure. But it's not really executed that well. That said, it's still very funny to try and catch these geese. I would say my top three, like, looking at it, of, like, the games, uh, Chobuchan Fighter is my number one, because it's just a funny little goof um, that I liked. Um... Then like the turtle or frog race, and then lucky hit, or actually lucky hit two, like mm. and then the yeah. races like three. I'd say um, I would say the little um, battle rally mini game where you're finding Chobachans is pretty great at number one. Number two would probably be uh, Flower Bird, Wind and Moon, and three would be Chobachan Fighter. Yeah. Uh I am uh, number one lucky hit, number two flower bird wind moon, mostly because of the sound design. It is. It does sound <laughs> real good. 
I didn't notice that most of the time because when I realized I had to grind for money, I just put on like a podcast or whatever. It just sure, but like when you put like it has like the mahjong sound effect style when you pick which one you want because Rio just like thunks down this wooden block and it sounds fucking fantastic. Um, and then also you get the like the metal moving over uh, porcelain sound effect as the ball is moving around the bowl. That's very good. And yeah. then of course uh, Turtle Race is my third. Yeah, there's also the split second at the end of Flower Road, Wind and Moon, where it's on the edge, and you're like, oh, is it gonna, is it gonna? Yes, it does. Yeah. And then, I think, what was the last part of Inez's question? It's like, what, did anything in 3 compare to, like, standing on the road? Like, no, frankly. Because, like, there is this, like, in 2, it, like, there really was that moment of desperation that you noticed, that you mentioned that works so well in that game. Rio is broke. He needs to make money. The quickest way to make money is to like like occupy the fucking lucky hit stand and beg people to play. Or like at least in 2 and 1 even is like if you're just if you need to kill some time before another story trigger, there's some like decent arcade games and side activities. There's like duck races in 2 and it's like you can arm wrestle. Like you can get to you can get up to some stuff, but like, well, in, and go ahead. Also underrated in one. I liked training my moves. Yeah. Because the combat system was fun because it's and like, you're just standing alone in a parking lot. Just, you know, swinging at the air was nice. Yeah. And it's, it's just one of those things where like in, and also in like in Yakuza, like the comparison is obvious because like you had lots of side activities there, but you could wander around, you could get distracted, but you could also find side missions and interact with wacky characters and like weird scenarios. And it was like there was like a living, breathing sense to this world that like three doesn't really capitalize on at all. Mm -hmm. All right, okay. we ready for our next one? Yep. Yep, let's do it. Uh this one comes in from M. Hi, Hi, Novelers. I don't know the first fucking thing about Shenmue, but I have watched the Giant Bomb Endurance run of Shenmue 1 and keep telling myself that someday I will take this journey. So my question is, in a world of seemingly endless Yakuza and Yakuza-adjacent games like Judgment, what is the thing that makes Shenmue special? And if such a thing was lost with 3, as I know you didn't like it, what's the kind of game you'd want to see that takes these sort of off-kilter life sim melodramas in another direction? Okay. So I hope that, like the first half of this podcast helps like contextualize why one and two are really special games. It is one of those things where you have to kind of look at it historically, but I feel like even removed historically, I think the thing that's really special about Shenmue one and two is that it really appreciates the like, in life, not everything is exciting, but that's okay because it can still be meaningful. You can raise a, you know, you can help raise a cat in Shenmue 1. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't, like, give you bonuses or anything like that. But you can just do it because it's, like, a kind and good thing to do. And I think that, like, the thing that makes 1 and 2 so special is that you can just, like, feel like, you can get lost in this kind of world. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes them so appealing and interesting to me. 
I think one and two are compelling for many of the same reasons six mentioned, where like one specifically is kind of a slow burn tragedy happening, and uh, two kind of moves into more of an action mo movie situation, but like it's finding the compelling moments of that action movie and hammering home on them, like uh, the bits where you're. In order to train, you're basically taking these books and uh, airing them out without dropping them. Or you're going on to a wild... You're going through a wild goose chase through a city you don't know where everyone speaks a language you don't recognize. And it does a great job of capturing that same energy without, uh, without basically turning it into the same level of action or like it's not the same level of action or violence as something like a grand theft auto or or even like a yakuza yeah even a yakuza because yeah. yeah one of the biggest problems with judgment is that even though it's supposed to be a detective game you're just fucking beating people up all the time but uh yeah, shenmue is not a beat-em-up that's the thing that yakuza did it added a ton of beat-em-up but i think like one of the things that you know we've sort of hinted at in ways we talked about in ways but like shenmue is a game about scale in a way that like Okay, <clears throat> you are like, I am going to track down this man who murdered my father. And the game says, okay, go ahead. And you're like, oh, but like, what's my first step? And the game's like, I don't know. Call the cops. What's your first step? First step, yeah. call, like, the what, call the cops. Call the cops. And then Rio goes, no, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that. And right, it's like, like, make some money to like, like, it's like, oh, I need to fly to Hong Kong. How do you get money? Oh, you got to get a job. Or you gotta ask around town for jobs. Oh, oh, you're asking and everyone's like, we don't need anyone right now. And you're like, no, this is a video game. You're supposed to help me out here. Or like, here's another great example. In Shen early on in Shenmue 2, you are um, you you arrive and you help out a little family, because apparently you were nice to them on the ride over, and they're like, Hey, here's this uh, here's this like guest house that they'll like they'll take in people for free, just like if you don't, you know, if you don't know your place, you can just stay here over at the dock and you start exploring and you run into joy. And Joy's like, wow, you are a clearly fucking, like, lost little Japanese boy. Can I help you? And you're like, I'm fine, thank you. And you're, and she's like, yeah, do you have a place to stay? And you're like, yeah, I do. And she's like, by the way, the place of the harbor closed. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's... The enormity of tasks is never like sh shrunk down, and that's that's what I love so much about Shenmue. Is it is it is a game where, like, even if it's not like hard as in like game difficulty, tasks are never presented as being simple or easy. Right. Yeah. And so, the second half of the question is like, what like how would you want like this sort of game to be approached? Like if, like if you could do. Uh, is it like if you could do Shenmue three again, or like what? What was the question? If if Shenmue three doesn't capture what you like about Shenmue, what what's the kind of game you'd want to see that can do it? Yeah, and for me, it would basically be Judgment without all the combat. Like I love that specific. <laughs> uh, I I just love that specific approach of a high octane TV drama um, where you're just like getting into detective work, both as unscrupulous as like looking out for cheating husbands and as serious as tracking down a serial killer and it's a fun if they leaned forward if they lean further into just like being a civilian within this area um it would be even better 
Yeah, one of like I think the biggest lesson of Shenmue to me is that you don't need to make everything epic, right? And like there was a um I didn't play these games because they didn't come out here and it's it's complicated, but there is a uh spinoff of the Yakuza games. And we keep mentioning Yakuza because despite the fact that we reject the idea that they are the natural successor there, it is clearly that like basically no one paid attention to the lessons of Shenmue except for Yakuza did a little. (laughs) Um, There is a spinoff on PSP about being a high school kid. And like, yeah, give me that. Give me a person, give me a story about a person whose problems are big to them, but not to the world. That's what I want. Yeah, that'd be great. And for me, like, the kind of, like, game that captures some of the things that I would want, like, already kind of exist. And this is going to be kind of a weird one, but, like, so I really liked the early Animal Crossing games. Mm, In Animal Crossing, that is about living in a like okay it's very simple obviously and your your interactions with the community are not complicated but the idea that it's trying to sell the thing that like animal crossing kind of is really effective at is making you realize like the fucking like appeal of those games before like new horizons or whatever was just you just live here and you get to know people and you decorate your place and you just like get to just kind of enjoy a peaceful place and it's like for me a game that would be like like if i were to like just pick the pieces of shenmue 3 that like would work just like focus it in bailu village as a small group of people and you just get to know them you just get to talk with them and learn about their lives and like be in- interested in engaging with them and then you could do the martial arts stuff but the some of the most fun i ever had training in martial arts was just you know the friends i made like mm-hmm. the sparring partners i had that like would want to teach me something cool or just like hey hey man let's just hang out and just like you know it's like get a drink later or whatever right like yeah what you can do is like for this game just be about like appreciating the the quietness of like life the quietness of how your life really isn't an action movie and in the in the context of this game it could just be Shenmue or, or not Shenmue, like Rio has this opportunity to live a normal life and then right at the end something happens that wakes him up and he you know, goes back on his revenge quest and really drill into the tragedy of it. But, like, moments... Like, the games that I really like are ones that allow me to just sit with the characters, to just breathe, to just experience what's going on, you know? And more games need to do that because, like, I love a high-octane game. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I have fighting game brainworms. I love it when a game is super intense and super chaotic and lots of shit is going on. But sometimes I just want a game where it's like I get to hang out with some interesting characters and just be their friends and enjoy their company and bask in a like peaceful portion of a world, you know? Yeah, there's a the I hadn't 
thought about the Animal Crossing thing, and I don't think it's the most natural comparison, but I sure. get what you're saying. Yeah. And I think there's like a way in which if you're trying to explain Shenmue to someone else, it's like, what if one of the, she- the villagers in Animal Crossing decided they should actually be in an action game? And was trying to break out of Animal Crossing. <laughs> right. Uh, that sounds uh, like a good movie. And, and like another another comparison, just briefly, like the story of Seasons games. Like the Harvest Moon franchise yeah. is all about like, like sometimes it's just like, yeah, you're trying to maximize crops and shit like that. But most of that game is just prepping for the next season, figuring out what crops you want to grow. Then like getting married and like interacting with this town of weirdos and then hanging out with like fairies and kappas and shit like that right but it's a at the Mm. very it's a farming game but there's no violence there's no like conflict it's just sort of like well you make enough money to do the things you want to do to make a nice big farm like that's like such a small scale problem that i think games can be really effective at selling at how even the smallest problems or smallest scale problems in your life can be meaningful. Problems are all relative. Brains are really good at adapting. If something feels like a big deal to you, it's a big deal. It is the same like chemicals firing in your brain when the president of a country has to deal with a war as when you lose your job. Right. Yeah. And so video games are really good at activating that part of your brain that can sell, like, why a thing can be important. And you don't have to make the the red-haired temptress burning down a castle to, like, make that effective. At least, the, I, I mean, mean, especially if she's not even going to offer to step on me. What? What? <laughs> I was going to say something like, well, that shit can be sick, but in a different context. Yeah, which I think dovetails us nicely into our next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, this comes in from Anonymous. Um, just not tried, but like if you want to set, like I'm assuming Anonymous because it's not signed. If you don't, if you sign it, we'll read a name, but you know, I never know. So, <clears throat> is Yakuza really the successor to Shenmue? People say it is. There's a mundane feeling to most of Shenmue that feels quite different than the heightened organized crime drama and wacky hijinks of Yakuza, and I wish more games would go for something similar. Yeah, no, we we hard agree with you. It's not. Yeah, yeah. It's, even something like Judgment has Kane Man who has <laughs> his Kane. You you fight him in a very in a multi tiered boss fight, and each time you run into him, he has transformed his Kane into different things, like a shotgun or a sword or things like that. Right. Like Yakuza has a certain amount of wild bombast, but like the connections that people make, the connections we've made, is that like. Well, Kamarocho feels like a place that people live and breathe and experience. You know, Kiryu is stoic and unchanging, but in a way that the narrative, like, complements. That says, oh, because he is stoic and unchanging, that's what allows him to have an effect on the world. He interacts with people, weird people, quite frequently, but just as often as getting into, like, a massive combat encounter, sometimes, like fucking kiryu just helps somebody out of a jam and i'm just saying like it would not be a huge like leap for the for like the yakuza team to be like okay take the like you have actionified and made it super engaging the parts of like shenmue that people like really latched onto, and i think they could be like okay now we're gonna spread this out and we're gonna lower the stakes 
so that you can do this sort of life sim sort of stuff. I don't mm-hmm. think they may not do it perfectly. I mean, we don't know. They'll never make that game. <laughs> but Probably, yeah. but regardless, I don't think it would be a huge stretch to just get someone on the direct creative team to make sure that they provide like have you Suzuki tell do the story supervision and say, "Hey, this is what I'm going for." And this team is very effective at like putting out a game that like plays the way you want it to play. The most like Shenmue Yakuza has ever been is the mini game in Yakuza five where you're working the ramen stand and people walk up and tell you how hard they want their noodles cooked. (laughs) Right. And they can focus in on that sensation really well. And and also the moments of quiet, because the things that like make Yakuza special is the moments in which Kiryu is just kind of reflecting on where his life has been and where it's going and how mm-hmm. even like a just mild, like brief, hushed, whisper conversation that he has with someone can be just as intense and meaningful as Daisakuze like screaming at you on a motorcycle with a lead pipe, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that team is really good at knowing when to escalate the conflict and when to just slow it down. And if you just make them focus on the slowing it down part, I think they could have made something really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's the connection I make. I agree. Uh, And that's it for for emails. And I think that's it for Shenmue 1 through 3. Um... I can't say all of Shenmue because technically it's theoretically possible there will be a Shenmue 4 one day. Honestly, I feel like Shenmue 3 probably killed that possibility. I'm pretty excited for like Yu Suzuki's next game, which is coming out in a few weeks. That's just like it, it's the complete total opposite of Shenmue, where it's just um, this girl riding on top of a gigantic geese uh, shooting enemies in the sky as a knockoff queen. Um musician plays a bunch of music like that seems fucking rad you know what i'm looking forward to yeah playing something other than shenmue 3 in my free time yeah thank god i don't have to a month and a half of every basically every free moment where i have the willpower playing one of the three shenmues and listen those first two are very good but that was a lot man i am i am so happy we got this done i have the next week off from work i now could be like man i don't gotta play nothing I can play Drainus. I can play like a new. I, I just got Guilty Gear Strive. I, just, I got this stuff. It's like, I can just play whatever the hell I want. I don't have to play this game anymore. It's well, like the moment I was finished, Jennifer asked, "Like, should I keep it on the hard drive?" And I was like, "No, just uninstall it." Well, personally, I am excited for our next uh, novel, not new game, which is going to be um, AI: The Somnium Files Nirvana Institute. Or Nirvana Initiative. I forget the exact subtitle there, but uh, it's going to be with uh, six of myself, as well as uh, two guests. Yep. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to that. We're not announcing the guests just yet, because, uh, you know, it'll be fun for us to reveal it on Twitter or something a little closer mm-hmm. to to time of, of, you know, release and recording. Yep. Um, but it's, listen... We've accidentally 
by losing a co-host by overworking them created the best year of novel not new you've ever heard (laughs) (laughs) shout outs to olivia (laughs) shout outs but like honestly like this was the this was the first time i ever guested on the show but honestly it's probably the most like like appropriate time because we finally made the commitment that the end of like we said at the end of like Shenmue two that we'll eventually get the three, and at the end of the day, the only re- like if I truly here's here's the thing even though I just spent the last like three hours dunking on this game, <laughs> this game would not have inspired such passion out of me if I didn't care, because I do care. I adore this series. For its warts and all, and I just want it to be better because I know it can be better. There are games that can do the things that I want it to do, and like I think it can be done. Um, I still genuinely think that it is special that we do have this game, but I really wit like I really wish it could have gone another way. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's like if nothing else. I think I, I said this, uh, or we said this, you know, to the effect of the end la- at the end of Shenmue two. Even if Shenmue three turns out to be a disappointment, I can still play one and two. I can still get to that scene and with Shenhua singing on the tree and tears, you know, well up into my eyes. I can still listen to that theme and it still just shakes me emotionally. If nothing else, this doesn't ruin it just want it to be better to to be honest i am i wish i hadn't played it because the possibility of shenmue was so much more interesting in my head before i played this game yeah but i do think it's a valuable thing to exist yes anyway where can people find you kyrie (sighs) all right (laughs) the easiest part of the podcast (laughs) Follow me at Kyrie A page on twitter.com. Um, that is where I post things. Um, and also, I don't know when this is going up, um, but by this time, or around this time, uh, Ultimate Despair Reprise is coming back. Um, we recorded an episode not too long ago. That's our Rampa podcast, another series I have very conflicted and highly emotional feelings on. Uh, you can find me and Jennifer on that podcast. Um, check out at youdespaircast on twitter.com. Um, that's where you'll find updates as we repost the new episodes. Um, it's still extremely funny that on that Twitter account, on like December of 2021 I or something, I told Jen to tweet out the words, tweet soon, and then we didn't tweet anything for like six months. Hey, podcasts, <laughs> tough to make. Yeah, I just think like that like that joke is funnier than anything we could have crafted. But still, yeah, at you despaircast and also follow me at, at Kyria A page and of course you can find everything that I do on uh Scanline Media. How about you, Six? Uh you can find me on Twitter at Six Detmar, S A X D E T T M A R. Uh, my DMs are open. I'm really looking forward to uh, more news about Shenmue Online. I haven't heard anything since 2007, but it hasn't been canceled, so clearly it's coming. Um, <laughs> we gotta and, start uh, a guild. We gotta start a like, guild, you know? Well, yeah, are we gonna be... Okay, listen, which clan are you joining? Are we joining uh, Shenhua, Xu Ying, or Ren? Ren, all the way. 
You're a fool. You really aren't going to join Li Xiaotao's clan? Are you out of your minds? Li oh. Xiaotao will take us to victory. I guess Li Xiaotao would be pretty cool, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hell anyway. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, like uh, like everyone else here, ScanlandMedia.com, Patreon, it comes to Scanland Media. Yep. You can find me at JBU3 on Twitter. Uh, most of my stuff, <laughs> like these other two, are is located on ScanlineMedia.com or Patreon.com slash ScanlineMedia. We've been making some really exciting moves, by the way, behind the scenes at Scanline Media. I'm really excited to, like, share them with you. Like, we all are, like, we're, we're doing some stuff I think you all are going to really like. But also, shout-outs to Abnormal Mapping for hosting this podcast. Um, like, I, like, if nothing else, like, we are, you know, in their debt in many ways. Um, but, of this, course, This yeah. whole podcast exists because one day... M messaged Jen and was like, what the fuck is a visual novel? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes things just start because you're like, hey, no one else is doing this. We should do it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Uh, but my back is very sore. I don't want to sit here anymore. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. Quick save. Yeah. <laughs> See you later, everyone. See, now you're on the correct podcast for that one. <laughs> But I'm not, because this game doesn't have a quick save.